What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 37 of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Thrice happy she that is so well assured unto herself and settled so in heart, that neither will for better be allured, ne fears to worse with any chance to start, but like a steady ship doth strongly part the raging waves and keeps her course aright, ne aught for tempest doth from it depart, ne aught for fairer weather's false delight. Such self-assurance need not fear the spite of grudging foes, ne favor seek of friends but in the stay of her own steadfast might neither to one herself nor other bends. Most happy she that most assured doth rest, but he most happy who such one loves best. Spencer The doubt hinted by Mr. Vincy whether it were only the general election or the end of the world that was coming on, now that George the Fourth was dead, Parliament dissolved, Wellington and Peel generally depreciated, and the new king apologetic, was a feeble type of the uncertainties in provincial opinion at that time. With the glow-worm lights of country places, how could men see which were their own thoughts in the confusion of a Tory ministry passing liberal measures, of Tory nobles and electors being anxious to return liberals rather than friends of the recreant ministers, and of outcries for remedies which seemed to have a mysteriously remote bearing on private interest, and were made suspicious by the advocacy of disagreeable neighbors. Buyers of the Middlemarch newspapers found themselves in an anomalous position. During the agitation on the Catholic question, many had given up the Pioneer, which had a motto from Charles James Fox, and was in the van of progress, because it had taken Peel's side about the Papists, and had thus blotted its liberalism with a toleration of Jesuitry and Baal. But they were ill-satisfied with the trumpet, which, since its blasts against Rome, and in the general flaccidity of the public mind, nobody knowing who would support whom, had become feeble in its blowing. 
It was a time, according to a noticeable article in the Pioneer, when the crying needs of the country might well counteract a reluctance to public action on the part of men whose minds had from long experience acquired breadth as well as concentration, decision of judgment as well as tolerance, dispassionateness as well as energy, in fact, all those qualities which in the melancholy experience of mankind have been the least disposed to share lodgings. Mr. Hackbutt, whose fluent speech was at that time floating more widely than usual, and leaving much uncertainty as to its ultimate channel, was heard to say in Mr. Hawley's office that the article in question emanated from Brooke of Tipton, and that Brooke had secretly bought the Pioneer some months ago. "'That means mischief, eh?' said Mr. Hawley. "'He's got the freak of being a popular man now, after dangling about like a stray tortoise. So much the worse for him. I've had my eye on him for some time. He shall be prettily pumped upon. He's a damned bad landlord. What business has an old county man to come currying favor with a low set of dark-blue freemen? As to his paper, I only hope he may do the writing himself. It would be worth our paying for.' I understand he has got a very brilliant young fellow to edit it, who can write the highest style of leading article, quite equal to anything in the London papers, and he means to take very high ground on reform. Let Brooke reform his rent-roll. He's a cursed old screw, and the buildings all over his estate are going to rack. I suppose this young fellow is some loose fish from London. His name is Ladislaw. He is said to be of foreign extraction. "'I know the sort,' said Mr. Hawley. "'Some emissary. "'He'll begin with flourishing about the rights of man, "'and end with murdering a wench. "'That's the style.' "'You must concede that there are abuses, Hawley,' "'said Mr. Hackbutt, "'foreseeing some political disagreement with his family lawyer. "'I myself should never favor immoderate views. "'In fact, I take my stand with Huskisson.' but I cannot blind myself to the consideration that the non-representation of large towns— "'Large towns be damned,' said Mr. Hawley, impatient of exposition. "'I know a little too much about Middlemarch elections. Let em quash every pocket-borough to-morrow and bring in every mushroom town in the kingdom. They'll only increase the expense of getting into Parliament. I go upon facts.' Mr. Hawley's disgust at the notion of the pioneer being edited by an emissary, and of Brooke becoming actively political, as if a tortoise of desultory pursuits should protrude its small head ambitiously and become rampant, was hardly equal to the annoyance felt by some members of Mr. Brooke's own family. The result had oozed forth gradually, like the discovery that your neighbor has set up an unpleasant kind of manufacture which will be permanently under your nostrils without legal remedy. The pioneer had been secretly bought even before Will Ladislaw's arrival, the expected opportunity having offered itself in the readiness of the proprietor to part with a valuable property which did not pay. And in the interval since Mr. Brooke had written his invitation, those germinal ideas of making his mind tell upon the world at large, which had been present in him from his younger years, but had hitherto lain in some obstruction, had been sprouting under cover. 
The development was much furthered by a delight in his guest which proved greater than even he had anticipated. For it seemed that Will was not only at home in all those artistic and literary subjects which Mr. Brooke had gone into at one time, but that he was strikingly ready at seizing the points of the political situation, and dealing with them in that large spirit which, aided by adequate memory, lends itself to quotation and general effectiveness of treatment. "'He seems to me a kind of Shelley, you know,' Mr. Brooke took an opportunity of saying, for the gratification of Mr. Casaubon. "'I don't mean as to anything objectionable, laxities or atheism or anything of that kind, you know.' Ladislaw's sentiments in every way, I am sure, are good. Indeed, we were talking a great deal together last night. But he has the same sort of enthusiasm for liberty, freedom, emancipation. A fine thing under guidance, under guidance, you know. I think I shall be able to put him on the right tack, and I am the more pleased because he is a relation of yours, Casaubon. If the right tack implied anything more precise than the rest of Mr. Brooke's speech, Mr. Casaubon silently hoped that it referred to some occupation at a great distance from Lowick. He had disliked Will while he helped him, but he had begun to dislike him still more now that Will had declined his help. That is the way with us when we have any uneasy jealousy in our disposition. If our talents are chiefly of the burrowing kind, our honey-sipping cousin, whom we have grave reasons for objecting to, is likely to have a secret contempt for us, and any one who admires him passes an oblique criticism on ourselves. Having the scruples of rectitude in our souls, we are above the meanness of injuring him. Rather, we meet all his claims on us by active benefits, and the drawing of checks for him, being a superiority which he must recognize gives our bitterness a milder infusion. Now Mr. Casaubon had been deprived of that superiority, as anything more than a remembrance, in a sudden, capricious manner. His antipathy to Will did not spring from the common jealousy of a winter-worn husband. It was something deeper, bred by his lifelong claims and discontents. But Dorothea, now that she was present, Dorothea, as a young wife, who herself had shown an offensive capability of criticism, necessarily gave concentration to the uneasiness which had before been vague. Will Ladislaw, on his side, felt that his dislike was flourishing at the expense of his gratitude, and spent much inward discourse in justifying the dislike. Casaubon hated him. He knew that very well. On his first entrance he could discern a bitterness in the mouth, and a venom in the glance which would almost justify declaring war in spite of past benefits. He was much obliged to Casaubon in the past, but really the act of marrying this wife was a set-off against the obligation. It was a question whether gratitude which refers to what is done for one's self ought not to give way to indignation at what is done against another and Casaubon had done a wrong to Dorothea in marrying her. A man was bound to know himself better than that, and if he chose to grow grey, crunching bones in a cavern, he had no business to be luring a girl into his companionship. "'It is the most horrible of virgin sacrifices,' said Will. 
and he painted to himself what were Dorothea's inward sorrows as if he had been riding a choric wail. But he would never lose sight of her. He would watch over her. If he gave up everything else in life, he would watch over her. And she should know that she had one slave in the world. Will had, to use Sir Thomas Brown's phrase, a passionate prodigality of statement both to himself and others. The simple truth was that nothing then invited him so strongly as the presence of Dorothea. Invitations of the formal kind had been wanting, however, for Will had never been asked to go to Lowick. Mr. Brooke, indeed, confident of doing everything agreeable which Casabon, poor fellow, was too much absorbed to think of, had arranged to bring Ladislaw to Lowick several times, not neglecting, meanwhile, to introduce him elsewhere on every opportunity as a young relative of Casabon's. And though Will had not seen Dorothea alone, their interviews had been enough to restore her former sense of young companionship with one who was cleverer than herself, yet seemed ready to be swayed by her. Poor Dorothea, before her marriage, had never found much room in other minds for what she cared most to say, and she had not, as we know, enjoyed her husband's superior instruction so much as she had expected. If she spoke with any keenness of interest to Mr. Casaubon, he heard her with an air of patience, as if she had given a quotation from the delectus familiar to him from his tender years, and sometimes mentioned curtly what ancient sects or personages had held similar ideas, as if there were too much of that sort in stock already. At other times he would inform her that she was mistaken, and reassert what her remark had questioned. But Will Ladislaw always seemed to see more in what she said than she herself saw. Dorothea had little vanity, but she had the ardent woman's need to rule beneficently, by making the joy of another soul. Hence the mere chance of seeing Will occasionally was like a lunette opened in the wall of her prison, giving her a glimpse of the sunny air, and this pleasure began to nullify her original alarm at what her husband might think about the introduction of Will as her uncle's guest. On this subject Mr. Casaubon had remained dumb. But Will wanted to talk with Dorothea alone and was impatient of slow circumstance. However slight the terrestrial intercourse between Dante and Beatrice, or Petrarch and Laura, time changes the proportion of things, and in later days it is preferable to have fewer sonnets and more conversation. Necessity excused stratagem, but stratagem was limited by the dread of offending Dorothea. He found out at last that he wanted to take a particular sketch at Lowick, and one morning when Mr. Brooke had to drive along the Lowick Road on his way to the county town, Will asked to be set down with his sketch-book and camp-stool at Lowick, and, without announcing himself at the manor, settled himself to sketch in a position where he must see Dorothea if she came out to walk, and he knew that she usually walked an hour in the morning. But the stratagem was defeated by the weather. Clouds gathered with treacherous quickness, the rain came down, and Will was obliged to take shelter in the house. He intended, on the strength of relationship, to go into the drawing-room and wait there without being announced, and seeing his old acquaintance, the butler in the hall, he said, 
Don't mention that I am here, Pratt. I will wait till luncheon. I know Mr. Casaubon does not like to be disturbed when he is in the library. Master is out, sir. There's only Mrs. Casaubon in the library. I'd better tell her you're here, sir, said Pratt, a red-cheeked man given to lively converse with Tantrip, and often agreeing with her that it must be dull for Madame. Oh, very well. This confounded rain has hindered me from sketching, said Will, feeling so happy that he affected indifference with delightful ease. In another minute he was in the library, and Dorothea was meeting him with her sweet, unconstrained smile. "'Mr. Casaubon has gone to the Archdeacon's,' she said at once. "'I don't know whether he will be home again long before dinner. He was uncertain how long he should be. Did you want to say anything particular to him?' "'No, I came to sketch, but the rain drove me in. Else I would not have disturbed you yet. I supposed that Mr. Casaubon was here, and I know he dislikes interruption at this hour.' "'I am indebted to the rain, then. I am so glad to see you.' Dorothea uttered these common words with the simple sincerity of an unhappy child visited at school. "'I really came for the chance of seeing you alone,' said Will, mysteriously forced to be just as simple as she was. He could not stay to ask himself why not. "'I wanted to talk about things as we did in Rome. It always makes a difference when other people are present.' "'Yes,' said Dorothea, in her clear, full tone of assent. "'Sit down.' She seated herself on a dark ottoman with the brown books behind her, looking in her plain dress of some thin woolen-white material, without a single ornament on her besides her wedding-ring, as if she were under a vow to be different from all other women. And Will sat down opposite her at two yards' distance, the light falling on his bright curls, and delicate but rather petulant profile, with its defiant curves of lip and chin. Each looked at each other as if they had been two flowers which had opened then and there. Dorothea for the moment forgot her husband's mysterious irritation against Will. It seemed fresh water at her thirsty lips to speak without fear to the one person whom she had found receptive, for in looking backward through sadness she exaggerated a past solace. "'I have often thought I should like to talk to you again,' she said immediately. "'It seems strange to me how many things I said to you.' "'I remember them all,' said Will, with the unspeakable content in his soul of feeling that he was in the presence of a creature worthy to be perfectly loved. I think his own feelings at that moment were perfect, for we mortals have our divine moments when love is satisfied in the completeness of the beloved object. "'I have tried to learn a great deal since we were in Rome,' said Dorothea. "'I can read Latin a little, and I am beginning to understand just a little Greek. I can help Mr. Casaubon better now. I can find out references for him and save his eyes in many ways. But it is very difficult to be learned. It seems as if people were worn out on the way to great thoughts, and can never enjoy them because they are too tired.' If a man has a capacity for great thoughts, he is likely to overtake them before he is decrepit, said Will, with irrepressible quickness. But through certain sensibilities Dorothea was as quick as he, and seeing her face change, he added immediately, But it is quite true that the best minds have been sometimes overstrained in working out their ideas. You correct me, said Dorothea. 
I expressed myself ill. I should have said that those who have great thoughts get too much worn in working them out. I used to feel about that, even when I was a little girl, and it always seemed to me that the use I should like to make of my life would be to help someone who did great works, so that his burden might be lighter. Dorothea was led on to this bit of autobiography without any sense of making a revelation. But she had never before said anything to Will which threw so strong a light on her marriage. He did not shrug his shoulders, and for want of that muscular outlet he thought the more irritably of beautiful lips kissing holy skulls and other emptinesses ecclesiastically enshrined. Also he had to take care that his speech should not betray that thought. "'But you may easily carry the help too far,' he said, "'and get overwrought yourself. "'Are you not too much shut up? "'You already look paler. "'It would be better for Mr. Casbon to have a secretary. "'He could easily get a man who would do half his work for him. "'It would save him more effectually, "'and you need only help him in lighter ways.' "'How can you think of that?' said Dorothea, "'in a tone of earnest remonstrance.' I should have no happiness if I did not help him in his work. What could I do? There's no good to be done in Lowick. The only thing I desire is to help him more. And he objects to a secretary. Please not to mention that again. Certainly not, now I know your feeling. But I have heard both Mr. Brooke and Sir James Chetham express the same wish. Yes, said Dorothea. But they don't understand. They want me to be a great deal on horseback, and have the garden altered and new conservatories to fill up my days. I thought you could understand that one's mind has other wants, she added rather impatiently. Besides, Mr. Casaubon cannot bear to hear of a secretary. My mistake is excusable, said Will. In old days I used to hear Mr. Casaubon speak as if he looked forward to having a secretary. Indeed, he held out the prospect of that office to me but I turned out to be not good enough for it. Dorothea was trying to extract out of this an excuse for her husband's evident repulsion, as she said with a playful smile, "'You were not a steady worker enough.' "'No,' said Will, shaking his head backward somewhat after the manner of a spirited horse. And then the old irritable demon prompting him to give another good pinch at the moth-wings of poor Mr. Casaubon's glory, he went on, and I have seen since that Mr. Casaubon does not like any one to overlook his work and know thoroughly what he is doing. He is too doubtful, too uncertain of himself. I may not be good for much, but he dislikes me because I disagree with him." Will was not without his intentions to be always generous, but our tongues are little triggers which have usually been pulled before general intentions can be brought to bear, and it was too intolerable that Casaubon's dislike of him should not be fairly accounted for to Dorothea. Yet, when he had spoken, he was rather uneasy as to the effect on her. But Dorothea was strangely quiet, not immediately indignant, as she had been on a like occasion in Rome. And the cause lay deep. She was no longer struggling against the perception of facts, but adjusting herself to their clearest perception. And now when she looked steadily at her husband's failure, still more at his possible consciousness of failure, 
she seemed to be looking along the one track where duty became tenderness. Will's want of reticence might have been met with more severity, if he had not already been recommended to her mercy by her husband's dislike, which must seem hard to her till she saw better reason for it. She did not answer at once, but after looking down ruminatingly, she said, with some earnestness, Mr. Casaubon must have overcome his dislike of you so far as his actions were concerned, and that is admirable. Yes, he has shown a sense of justice in family matters. It was an abominable thing that my grandmother should have been disinherited because she made what they called a mess-alliance, though there was nothing to be said against her husband except that he was a Polish refugee who gave lessons for his bread. I wish I knew all about her, said Dorothea. I wonder how she bore the change from wealth to poverty. I wonder whether she was happy with her husband. Do you know much about them? No, only that my grandfather was a patriot, a bright fellow, could speak many languages, musical, got his bread by teaching all sorts of things. They both died rather early, and I never knew much of my father beyond what my mother told me, but he inherited the musical talents. I remember his slow walk and his long, thin hands, and one day remains with me when he was lying ill and I was very hungry and had only a little bit of bread. Oh, what a different life from mine, said Dorothea, with keen interest, clasping her hands on her lap. I have always had too much of everything. But tell me how it was. Mr. Casaubon could not have known about you then. No, but my father had made himself known to Mr. Casaubon, and that was my last hungry day. My father died soon after, and my mother and I were well taken care of. Mr. Casaubon always expressly recognized it as his duty to take care of us because of the harsh injustice which had been shown to his mother's sister. But now I am telling you what is not new to you. In his inmost soul Will was conscious of wishing to tell Dorothea what was rather new even in his own construction of things, namely, that Mr. Casaubon had never done more than pay a debt towards him. Will was much too good a fellow to be easy under the sense of being ungrateful, and when gratitude has become a matter of reasoning, there are many ways of escaping from its bonds. No, answered Dorothea, Mr. Casaubon has always avoided dwelling on his own honorable actions. She did not feel that her husband's conduct was depreciated, but this notion of what justice had required in his relations with Will Ladislaw took strong hold on her mind. After a moment's pause, she added, "'He had never told me that he supported your mother. Is she still living?' "'No, she died by an accident, a fall, four years ago. It is curious that my mother, too, ran away from her family, but not for the sake of her husband. She never would tell me anything about her family, except that she forsook them to get her own living, went on the stage, in fact. She was a dark-eyed creature with crisp ringlets and never seemed to be getting old. You see, I come of rebellious blood on both sides, Will ended, smiling brightly at Dorothea, while she was still looking with serious intentness before her, like a child seeing a drama for the first time. But her face, too, broke into a smile as she said, That is your apology, I suppose, for having yourself been rather rebellious. I mean, to Mr. Casaubon's wishes. 
you must remember that you have not done what he thought best for you. And if he dislikes you, you were speaking of dislike a little while ago, but I should rather say, if he has shown any painful feelings towards you, you must consider how sensitive he has become from the wearing effect of study. Perhaps, she continued, getting into a pleading tone, my uncle has not told you how serious Mr. Casaubon's illness was. It would be very petty of us who are well and can bear things, to think much of small offences from those who carry a weight of trial. "'You teach me better,' said Will. "'I will never grumble on that subject again.' There was a gentleness in his tone which came from the unutterable contentment of perceiving, what Dorothea was hardly conscious of, that she was travelling into the remoteness of pure pity and loyalty towards her husband. Will was ready to adore her pity and loyalty, if she would associate himself with her in manifesting them. "'I have really sometimes been a perverse fellow,' he went on. "'But I will never again, if I can help it, do or say what you would disapprove.' "'That is very good of you,' said Dorothea, with another open smile. I shall have a little kingdom, then, where I shall give laws. But you will soon go away out of my rule, I imagine. You will soon be tired of staying at the Grange. That is a point I wanted to mention to you, one of the reasons why I wished to speak to you alone. Mr. Brooke proposes that I should stay in this neighborhood. He has bought one of the Middlemarch newspapers, and he wishes me to conduct that, and also to help him in other ways." "'Would not that be a sacrifice of higher prospects for you?' said Dorothea. "'Perhaps. But I have always been blamed for thinking of prospects, and not settling to anything. And here is something offered to me. If you would not like me to accept it, I will give it up. Otherwise I would rather stay in this part of the country than go away. I belong to nobody anywhere else.' "'I should like you to stay very much,' said Dorothea, at once as simply and readily as she had spoken at Rome. There was not the shadow of a reason in her mind at the moment why she should not say so. "'Then I will stay,' said Ladislaw, shaking his head backward, rising and going towards the window, as if to see whether the rain had ceased. But the next moment Dorothea, according to a habit which was getting continually stronger, began to reflect that her husband felt differently from herself and she coloured deeply under the double embarrassment of having expressed what might be in opposition to her husband's feeling, and of having to suggest this opposition to Will. His face was not turned towards her, and this made it easier to say. But my opinion is of little consequence on such a subject. I think you should be guided by Mr. Casaubon. I spoke without thinking of anything else than my own feeling, which has nothing to do with the real question but it now occurs to me, perhaps Mr. Casaubon might see that the proposal was not wise. Can you not wait now and mention it to him? I can't wait to-day, said Will, inwardly seared by the possibility that Mr. Casaubon would enter. The rain is quite over now. I told Mr. Brooke not to call for me. I would rather walk the five miles. I shall strike across Halsell Common and see the gleams on the wet grass. I like that. He approached her to shake hands quite hurriedly, longing, but not daring to say, "'Don't mention the subject to Mr. Casaubon.' No, he dared not, 
could not say it. To ask her to be less simple and direct would be like breathing on the crystal that you want to see the light through, and there was always the other great dread of himself becoming dimmed and forever ray-shorn in her eyes. "'I wish you could have stayed,' said Dorothea, with a touch of mournfulness, as she rose and put out her hand. She also had her thought which she did not like to express. Will certainly ought to lose no time in consulting Mr. Casaubon's wishes, but for her to urge this might seem an undue dictation. So they only said good-bye, and Will quitted the house, striking across the fields so as not to run any risk of encountering Mr. Casaubon's carriage, which, however, did not appear at the gate until four o'clock. That was an unpropitious hour for coming home. It was too early to gain the moral support under ennui of dressing his person for dinner, and too late to undress his mind of the day's frivolous ceremony and affairs, so as to be prepared for a good plunge into the serious business of study. On such occasions he usually threw into an easy-chair in the library, and allowed Dorothea to read the London papers to him, closing his eyes the while. Today, however, he declined that relief, observing that he had already had too many public details urged upon him. But he spoke more cheerfully than usual when Dorothea asked about his fatigue, and added with that air of formal effort which never forsook him even when he spoke without his waistcoat and cravat. "'I have had the gratification of meeting my former acquaintance, Dr. Spanning, to-day.' and of being praised by one who is himself a worthy recipient of praise. He spoke very handsomely of my late tractate on the Egyptian mysteries, using, in fact, terms which it would not become me to repeat. In uttering the last clause, Mr. Casaubon leaned over the elbow of his chair, and swayed his head up and down, apparently as a muscular outlet instead of that recapitulation which would not have been becoming. "'I am very glad you have had that pleasure,' said Dorothea, delighted to see her husband less weary than usual at this hour. "'Before you came I had been regretting that you happened to be out to-day.' "'Why so, my dear?' said Mr. Casaubon, throwing himself backward again. "'Because Mr. Ladislaw has been here, and he has mentioned a proposal of my uncle's which I should like to know your opinion of.' Her husband, she felt, was really concerned in this question. Even with her ignorance of the world, she had a vague impression that the position offered to Will was out of keeping with his family connections, and certainly Mr. Casbon had a claim to be consulted. He did not speak, but merely bowed. "'Dear uncle, you know, has many projects. It appears that he has bought one of the Middlemarch newspapers, and he has asked Mr. Ladislaw to stay in this neighborhood and conduct the paper for him, besides helping him in other ways.' Dorothea looked at her husband while she spoke, but he had at first blinked and finally closed his eyes, as if to say them, while his lips became more tense. "'What is your opinion?' she added, rather timidly, after a slight pause. "'Did Mr. Ladislaw come on purpose to ask my opinion?' said Mr. Casaubon, opening his eyes narrowly with a knife-edged look at Dorothea. She was really uncomfortable on the point he inquired about but she only became a little more serious, and her eyes did not swerve. No, she answered immediately. 
He did not say that he came to ask your opinion. But when he mentioned the proposal, he of course expected me to tell you of it. Mr. Casaubon was silent. I feared that you might feel some objection. But certainly a young man with so much talent might be very useful to my uncle, might help him to do good in a better way. And Mr. Ladislaw wishes to have some fixed occupation. He has been blamed, he says, for not seeking something of that kind, and he would like to stay in this neighborhood because no one cares for him elsewhere. Dorothea felt that this was a consideration to soften her husband. However, he did not speak, and she presently recurred to Dr. Spanning and the archdeacon's breakfast. But there was no longer sunshine on these subjects. The next morning, without Dorothea's knowledge, Mr. Casaubon dispatched the following letter, beginning, Dear Mr. Ladislaw. He had always before addressed him as Will. Mrs. Casaubon informs me that a proposal has been made to you, and, according to an inference by no means stretched, has on your part been in some degree entertained, which involves your residence in this neighborhood in a capacity which I am justified in saying touches my own position in such a way as renders it not only natural and warrantable in me, when that effect is viewed under the influence of legitimate feeling, but incumbent on me when the same effect is considered in the light of my responsibilities, to state at once that your acceptance of the proposal above indicated would be highly offensive to me. That I have some claim to the exercise of a veto here would not, I believe, be denied by any reasonable person cognizant of the relations between us, relations which, though thrown into the past by your recent procedure, are not thereby annulled in their character of determining antecedents. I will not here make reflections on any person's judgment. It is enough for me to point out to yourself that there are certain social fitnesses and proprieties which should hinder a somewhat near relative of mine from becoming anywise conspicuous in this vicinity in a status not only much beneath my own, but associated at best with the sialism of literary or political adventurers. At any rate, the contrary issue must exclude you from further reception at my house. Yours faithfully, Edward Casabon. Meanwhile, Dorothea's mind was innocently at work towards the further embitterment of her husband, dwelling with the sympathy that grew to agitation on what Will had told her about his parents and grandparents, any private hours in her day were usually spent in her blue-green boudoir, and she had come to be very fond of its pallid quaintness. Nothing had been outwardly altered there, but while the summer had gradually advanced over the western fields beyond the avenue of elms, the bare room had gathered within it those memories of an inward life which filled the air as with a cloud of good or bad angels the invisible yet active forms of our spiritual triumphs or our spiritual falls. She had been so used to struggle for and to find resolve in looking along the avenue towards the arch of western light that the vision itself had gained a communicating power. Even the pale stag seemed to have reminding glances and to mean mutely, Yes, we know. And the group of delicately touched miniatures 
had made an audience as of beings no longer disturbed about their own earthly lot, but still humanly interested, especially the mysterious Aunt Julia, about whom Dorothea had never found it easy to question her husband. And now, since her conversation with Will, many fresh images had gathered round that Aunt Julia who was Will's grandmother, the presence of that delicate miniature, so like a living face that she knew, helping to concentrate her feelings. What a wrong! To cut off the girl from the family protection and inheritance only because she had chosen a man who was poor. Dorothea, early troubling her elders with questions about the facts around her, had wrought herself into some independent clearness as to the historical, political reasons why eldest sons had superior rights and why land should be entailed. Those reasons, impressing her with a certain awe, might be weightier than she knew. But here was a question of ties which left them uninfringed. Here was a daughter whose child, even according to the ordinary aping of aristocratic institutions by people who are no more aristocratic than retired grocers, and who have no more land to keep together than a lawn and a paddock, would have a prior claim. Was inheritance a question of liking, or of responsibility? All the energy of Dorothea's natures went on the side of responsibility, the fulfillment of claims founded on our own deeds, such as marriage and parentage. It was true, she said to herself, that Mr. Casaubon had a debt to the Ladislaws, that he had to pay back what the Ladislaws had been wronged of. And now she began to think of her husband's will, which had been made at the time of their marriage, leaving the bulk of his property to her, with proviso in case of her having children. That ought to be altered, and no time ought to be lost. This very question, which had just arisen about Will Ladislaw's occupation, was the occasion for placing things on a new, right footing. Her husband, she felt sure, according to all his previous conduct, would be ready to take the just view, if she proposed it. She, in whose interest an unfair concentration of the property had been urged. His sense of right had surmounted, and would continue to surmount, anything that might be called antipathy. She suspected that her uncle's scheme was disapproved by Mr. Casaubon, and this made it seem all the more opportune that a fresh understanding should be begun, so that instead of Will's starting penniless and accepting the first function that offered itself, he should find himself in possession of a rightful income which should be paid by her husband during his life, and by an immediate alteration of the will should be secured at his death. The vision of all this as what ought to be done seemed to Dorothea like a sudden letting in of daylight, waking her from her previous stupidity and incurious self-absorbed ignorance about her husband's relation to others. Will Ladislaw had refused Mr. Casaubon's future aid on a ground that no longer appeared right to her, and Mr. Casaubon had never himself seen fully what was the claim upon him. But he will, said Dorothea, the great strength of his character lies here. And what are we doing with our money? We make no use of half of our income." My own money buys me nothing but an uneasy conscience. There was a peculiar fascination for Dorothea in this division of property intended for herself, 
and always regarded by her as excessive. She was blind, you see, to many things obvious to others, likely to tread in the wrong places, as Celia had warned her. Yet her blindness to whatever did not lie in her own pure purpose carried her safely by the side of precipices where vision would have been perilous with fear. The thoughts which had gathered vividness in the solitude of her boudoir occupied her incessantly through the day on which Mr. Casaubon had sent his letter to Will. Everything seemed hindrance to her till she could find an opportunity of opening her heart to her husband. To his preoccupied mind all subjects were to be approached gently, and she had never since his illness lost from her consciousness the dread of agitating him. But when young ardor is set brooding over the conception of a prompt deed, the deed itself seems to start forth with independent life, mastering ideal obstacles. The day passed in a somber fashion, not unusual, though Mr. Casaubon was perhaps unusually silent. But there were hours of the night which might be counted on as opportunities of conversation, for Dorothea, when aware of her husband's sleeplessness, had established a habit of rising, lighting a candle, and reading him to sleep again. And this night she was from the beginning sleepless, excited by resolves. He slept as usual for a few hours, but she had risen softly, and had sat in the darkness for nearly an hour, before he said, "'Dorothea, since you are up, will you light a candle?' "'Do you feel ill, dear?' was her first question, as she obeyed him. "'No, not at all, but I shall be obliged, since you are up, if you will read me a few pages of loath.' "'May I talk to you a little instead?' said Dorothea. "'Certainly.' I have been thinking about money all day, that I have always had too much, and especially the prospect of too much. These, my dear Dorothea, are providential arrangements. But if one has too much in consequence of others being wronged, it seems to me that the divine voice which tells us to set that wrong right must be obeyed. What, my love, is the bearing of your remark? that you have been too liberal in arrangements for me, I mean, with regard to property, and that makes me unhappy. How so? I have none but comparatively distant connections. I have been led to think about your Aunt Julia, and how she was left in poverty only because she married a poor man, an act which was not disgraceful, since he was not unworthy. It was on that ground, I know, that you educated Mr. Ladislaw and provided for his mother. Dorothea waited a few moments for some answer that would help her onward. None came, and her next words seemed the more forcible to her, falling clear upon the dark silence. But surely we should regard his claim as a much greater one, even to the half of that property which I know that you have destined for me, and I think he ought at once to be provided for on that understanding— it is not right that he should be in dependence of poverty while we are rich, and if there is any objection to the proposal he mentioned, the giving him his true place and his true share would set aside any motive for his accepting it. "'Mr. Ladislaw has probably been speaking to you on this subject,' said Mr. Casaubon, with a certain biting quickness not habitual to him. "'Indeed, no,' said Dorothea earnestly. "'How can you imagine it?' 
since he has so lately declined everything from you. I fear you think too hardly of him, dear. He only told me a little about his parents and grandparents, and almost all in answer to my questions. You are so good, so just, you have done everything you thought to be right, but it seems to me clear that more than that is right, and I must speak about it, since I am the person who would get what is called benefit by that more not being done. There was a perceptible pause before Mr. Casabon replied, not quickly as before, but with a still more biting emphasis. Dorothea, my love, this is not the first occasion, but it were well that it should be the last, on which you have assumed a judgment on subjects beyond your scope. Into the question how far conduct, especially in the matter of alliances, constitutes a forfeiture of family claims, I do not now enter. Suffice it that you are not here qualified to discriminate. What I now wish you to understand is that I accept no revision, still less dictation within that range of affairs which I have deliberated upon as distinctly and properly mine. It is not for you to interfere between me and Mr. Ladislaw, and still less to encourage communications from him to you which constitute a criticism on my procedure. Poor Dorothea, shrouded in the darkness, was in a tumult of conflicting emotions, alarm at the possible effect on himself of her husband's strongly manifested anger would have checked any expression of her own resentment even if she had been quite free from doubt and compunction under the consciousness that there might be some justice in his last insinuation hearing him breathe quickly after he had spoken she sat listening frightened wretched with a dumb inward cry for help to bear this nightmare of a life in which every energy was arrested by dread. But nothing else happened, except that they both remained a long while sleepless, without speaking again. The next day Mr. Casaubon received the following answer from Will Ladislaw. Dear Mr. Casaubon, I have given all due consideration to your letter of yesterday, but I am unable to take precisely your view of our mutual position. With the fullest acknowledgment of your generous conduct to me in the past, I must still maintain that an obligation of this kind cannot fairly fetter me as you appear to expect that it should. Granted that a benefactor's wishes may constitute a claim, there must always be a reservation as to the quality of those wishes." they may possibly clash with more imperative considerations, or a benefactor's veto might impose such a negation on a man's life that the consequent blank might be more cruel than the benefaction was generous. I am merely using strong illustrations. In the present case, I am unable to take your view of the bearing which my acceptance of occupation not enriching, certainly, but not dishonorable, will have on your own position, which seems to me too substantial to be affected in that shadowy manner. And, though I do not believe that any change in our relations will occur, certainly none has yet occurred, which can nullify the obligations imposed on me by the past, pardon me for not seeing that those obligations should restrain me from using the ordinary freedom of living where I choose, 
and maintaining myself by any lawful occupation I may choose. Regretting that there exists this difference between us as to a relation in which the conferring of benefits has been entirely on your side, I remain yours with persistent obligation, Will Ladislaw. Poor Mr. Casabon felt, and must not we, being impartial, feel with him a little, that no man had juster cause for disgust and suspicion than he. Young Ladislaw, he was sure, meant to defy and annoy him, meant to win Dorothea's confidence, and sow her mind with disrespect, and perhaps aversion, towards her husband. Some motive beneath the surface had been needed to account for Will's sudden change in rejecting Mr. Casaubon's aid and quitting his travels, and this defiant determination to fix himself in the neighborhood by taking up something so much at variance with his former choice as Mr. Brooke's Middlemarch projects, revealed clearly enough that the undeclared motive had relation to Dorothea. Not for one moment did Mr. Casaubon suspect Dorothea of any doubleness. He had no suspicions of her. But he had, what was little less uncomfortable, the positive knowledge that her tendency to form opinions about her husband's conduct was accompanied with a disposition to regard Will Ladislaw favorably, and be influenced by what he said. His own proud reticence had prevented him from ever being undeceived in the supposition that Dorothea had originally asked her uncle to invite Will to his house. And now, on receiving Will's letter, Mr. Casaubon had to consider his duty. He would never have been easy to call his action anything else than duty. But in this case, contending motives thrust him back into negations. Should he apply directly to Mr. Brooke, and demand of that troublesome gentleman to revoke his proposal? Or should he consult Sir James Chetham, and get him to concur in remonstrance against a step which touched the whole family? In either case, Mr. Casaubon was aware that failure was just as probable as success. It was impossible for him to mention Dorothea's name in the matter, and without some alarming urgency, Mr. Brooke was as likely as not, after meeting all representations with apparent assent, to wind up by saying, "'Never fear, Casaubon. Depend on it. Young Ladislaw will do you credit. Depend upon it. I have put my finger on the right thing.' And Mr. Casaubon shrank nervously from communicating on the subject with Sir James Chetham, between whom and himself there had never been any cordiality, and who would immediately think of Dorothea without any mention of her. Poor Mr. Casaubon was distrustful of everybody's feelings towards him, especially as a husband. To let any one suppose that he was jealous would be to admit their suspected view of his disadvantages. To let them know that he did not find marriage particularly blissful would imply his conversion to their probably earlier disapproval. It would be as bad as letting Carp and Brazenose generally know how backward he was in organizing the matter for his key to all mythologies. All through his life Mr. Casaubon had been trying not to admit even to himself the inward sores of self-doubt and jealousy, and on the most delicate of all personal subjects the habit of proud suspicious reticence told doubly. 
Thus Mr. Casaubon remained proudly, bitterly silent. But he had forbidden Will to come to Lowick Manor, and he was mentally preparing other measures of frustration. End of chapter 37《Chapter Thirty Eight of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. C'est beaucoup que le jugement des hommes sur les actions humaines, tôt ou tard, il devient efficace. Guizot. Sir James Chetham could not look with any satisfaction on Mr. Brooke's new courses, but it was easier to object than to hinder. Sir James accounted for his having come in alone one day to lunch with the Cadwalladers by saying, "'I can't talk to you as I want, before Celia. It might hurt her. Indeed, it would not be right.' "'I know what you mean. The pioneer at the Grange,' darted in Mrs. Cadwallader, almost before the last word was off her friend's tongue. "'It is frightful, this taking to buying whistles and blowing them in everybody's hearing.' lying in bed all day and playing at dominoes like poor lord plessy would be more private and bearable i see they are beginning to attack our friend brooke in the trumpet said the rector lounging back and smiling easily as he would have done if he had been attacked himself there are tremendous sarcasms against a landlord not a hundred miles from middlemarch who receives his own rents and makes no returns "'I do wish Brooke would leave that off,' said Sir James, with his little frown of annoyance. "'Is he really going to be put in nomination, though?' said Mr. Cadwallader. "'I saw Fairbrother yesterday. He's Whiggish himself. Hoists Brougham and useful knowledge. That's the worst I know of him. And he says that Brooke is getting up a pretty strong party. Bulstrode the banker is his foremost man. But he thinks Brooke would come off badly at a nomination.' exactly said sir james with earnestness i have been inquiring into the thing for i've never known anything about middlemarch politics before the county being my business what brooke trusts to is that they're going to turn out oliver because he's a peelite but holly tells me that if they send up a wig at all it is sure to be bagster one of those candidates who comes from heaven knows where but dead against ministers and an experienced parliamentary man Hawley's rather rough. He forgot that he was speaking to me. He said that if Brooke wanted a pelting, he could get it cheaper than by going to the hustings. "'I warned you all of it,' said Mrs. Cadwallader, waving her hands outward. "'I said to Humphrey long ago, Mr. Brooke is going to make a splash in the mud, and now he has done it.' "'Well, he might have taken it into his head to marry,' said the rector. "'That would have been a graver mess than a little flirtation with politics.' "'He may do that afterwards,' said Mrs. Cadwallader, "'when he has come out on the other side of the mud with an ague.' "'What I care for most is his own dignity,' said Sir James. "'Of course I care the more because of the family. "'But he's getting on in life now, "'and I don't like to think of his exposing himself. "'They will be raking up everything against him.' "'I suppose it's no use trying any persuasion,' said the rector. "'There's such an odd mixture of obstinacy and changeableness in Brooke. "'Have you tried him on the subject?' "'Well, no,' said Sir James. "'I feel a delicacy in appearing to dictate. 
but I have been talking to this young Ladislaw that Brooke is making a factotum of. Ladislaw seems clever enough for anything. I thought it as well to hear what he had to say, and he is against Brooke's standing this time. I think he'll turn him around. I think the nomination may be staved off. I know, said Mrs. Cadwallader, nodding. The independent member hasn't got his speeches well enough by heart. But this Ladislaw, there again is a vexatious business, said Sir James. We have had him two or three times to dine at the hall, you've met him by the by, as Brooke's guest and a relation of Casabon's, thinking he was only on a flying visit. And now I find he's in everybody's mouth in Middlemarch as the editor of the Pioneer. There are stories going about him as a quill-driving alien, a foreign emissary, and what not. Casabon won't like that, said the rector. There is some foreign blood in Ladislaw, returned Sir James. I hope he won't go into extreme opinions and carry Brooke on. Oh, he's a dangerous young sprig, that Mr. Ladislaw, said Mrs. Cadwallader, with his opera songs and his ready tongue. A sort of Byronic hero, an amorous conspirator, it strikes me. And Thomas Aquinas is not fond of him. I could see that the day the picture was brought. I don't like to begin on the subject with Casabon, said Sir James. He has more right to interfere than I. But it's a disagreeable affair all around. What a character for anybody with decent connections to show himself in! One of those newspaper fellows. You only have to look at Keck, who manages the trumpet. I saw him the other day with Hawley. His writing is sound enough, I believe, but he's such a low fellow that I wished he had been on the wrong side. "'What can you expect with these peddling Middlemarch papers?' said the rector. "'I don't suppose you could get a high style of man anywhere to be writing up interests he doesn't really care about, and for pay that hardly keeps him in at elbows.' "'Exactly. That's what makes it so annoying that Brooke should have put a man who has a sort of connection with the family in a position of that kind.' For my part, I think Ladislaw is rather a fool for accepting. "'It's Aquinas's fault,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'Why didn't he use his interest to get Ladislaw made an attaché or sent to India? That is how families get rid of troublesome sprigs.' "'There is no knowing to what lengths the mischief may go,' said Sir James anxiously. "'But if Casabon says nothing, what can I do?' "'Oh, my dear Sir James,' said the rector, don't let us make too much of all this. It is likely enough to end in mere smoke. After a month or two, Brooke and this Master Ladislaw will get tired of each other. Ladislaw will take wing, Brooke will sell the Pioneer, and everything will settle down again as usual. There is one good chance that he will not like to feel his money oozing away, said Mrs. Cadwallader. If I knew the items of election expenses, I could scare him. It's no use plying him with wide words like expenditure. I wouldn't talk of phlebotomy. I would empty a pot of leeches upon him. What we good, stingy people don't like is having our sixpences sucked away from us. And he will not like having things raked up against him, said Sir James. There is the management of his estate. They have begun upon that already. And it really is painful for me to see. It is a nuisance under one's very nose. I do think one is bound to do the best for one's land and tenants, especially in these hard times. "'Perhaps the trumpet may rouse him to make a change, and some good may come of it all,' said the rector. 
I know I should be glad. I should hear less grumbling when my tithe is paid. I don't know what I should do if there were not a modus in Tipton. I want him to have a proper man to look after things. I want him to take on Garth again, said Sir James. He got rid of Garth twelve years ago, and everything has been going wrong since. I think of getting Garth to manage for me. He has made such a capital plan for my buildings, and Lovegood is hardly up to the mark. But Garth would not undertake the Tipton estate again unless Brooke left it entirely to him. "'In the right of it, too,' said the rector. "'Garth is an independent fellow, an original, simple-minded fellow. One day, when he was doing some valuation for me, he told me point-blank that clergymen seldom understood anything about business and did mischief when they meddled, but he said it as quietly and respectfully as if he had been talking to me about sailors.' He would make a different parish of Tipton if Brooke would let him manage. I wish, by the help of the trumpet, you could bring that round. If Dorothea had kept near her uncle, there would have been some chance, said Sir James. She might have got some power over him in time, and she was always uneasy about the estate. She had wonderfully good notions about such things. But now Casabon takes her up entirely. Celia complains a good deal. We can hardly get her to dine with us since he had that fit. Sir James ended with a look of pitying disgust, and Mrs. Cadwallader shrugged her shoulders as much as to say that she was not likely to see anything new in that direction. Poor Casabon, the rector said. That was a nasty attack. I thought he looked shattered the other day at the archdeacon's. In point of fact, resumed Sir James, not choosing to dwell on fits. Brooke doesn't mean badly by his tenants, or any one else, but he's got that way of paring and clipping at expenses. "'Come, that's a blessing,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'That helps him to find himself in a morning. He may not know his own opinions, but he does know his own pocket.' "'I don't believe a man is in pocket by stinginess on his land.' Oh, stinginess may be abused like other virtues. It will not do to keep one's own pigs lean, said Mrs. Cadwallader, who had risen to look out of the window. But talk of an independent politician, and he will appear. What, Brooke? said her husband. Yes. Now you ply him with the trumpet, Humphrey, and I will put the leeches on him. What will you do, Sir James? The fact is, I don't like to begin about it with Brooke in our mutual position. The whole thing is so unpleasant. I do wish people would behave like gentlemen, said the good baronet, feeling that this was a simple and comprehensive program for social well-being. Here you all are, eh? said Mr. Brooke, shuffling round and shaking hands. I was going up to the hall by and by, Chetham, but it's pleasant to find everybody you know. Well, what do you think of things? Going on a little fast? It was true enough what Lafitte said— since yesterday a century has passed away. They're in the next century, you know, on the other side of the water, going on faster than we are. Why, yes, said the rector, taking up the newspaper. Here is the trumpet accusing you of lagging behind. Did you see? Eh, no, said Mr. Brooke, dropping his gloves into his hat and hastily adjusting his eyeglass. But Mr. Cadwallader kept the paper in his hand, saying, with a smile in his eyes, Look here, all this is about a landlord not a hundred miles from Middlemarch who receives his own rents. They say he is the most retrogressive man in the county, 
I think you must have taught them that word in the Pioneer. Oh, that is Keck, an illiterate fellow, you know. Retrogressive now. Come, that's capital. He thinks it means destructive. They want to make me out a destructive, you know, said Mr. Brooke, with that cheerfulness which is usually sustained by an adversary's ignorance. I think he knows the meaning of the word. Here is a sharp stroke or two. If we had to describe a man who is retrogressive in the most evil sense of the word, we should say he is one who would dub himself a reformer in our Constitution, while every interest for which he is immediately responsible is going to decay. A philanthropist who cannot bear one rogue to be hanged, but does not mind five honest tenants being half-starved. A man who shrieks at corruption and keeps his farms at rack-rent who roars himself red at rotten burrows, and does not mind if every field on his farms has a rotten gate. A man very open-hearted to Leeds in Manchester, no doubt, he would give any number of representatives who will pay for their seats out of their own pockets. What he objects to giving is a little return on rent days to help a tenant to buy stock, or an outlay on repairs to keep the weather out at a tenant's barn-door, or make his house look a little less like an Irish cottier's. But we all know the wag's definition of a philanthropist, a man whose charity increases directly as the square of the distance, and so on. All the rest is to show what sort of legislator a philanthropist is likely to make, ended the rector, throwing down the paper and clasping his hands at the back of his head while he looked at Mr. Brooke with an air of amused neutrality. "'Come, that's rather good, you know,' said Mr. Brooke, taking up the paper and trying to bear the attack as easily as his neighbor did, but coloring and smiling rather nervously. "'That about roaring himself red at rotten burrows. I never made a speech about rotten burrows in my life. And as to roaring myself red and that kind of thing, these men never understand what is good satire. Satire, you know, should be true up to a certain point.' I recollect they said that in the Edinburgh somewhere. It must be true up to a certain point. Well, that is really a hit about the gates, said Sir James, anxious to tread carefully. Dagley complained to me the other day that he hadn't got a decent gate on his farm. Garth has invented a new pattern of gate. I wish you would try it. One ought to use some of one's timber in that way. You go in for fancy farming, you know, Chetham, said Mr. Brooke appearing to glance over the columns of the trumpet. That's your hobby, and you don't mind the expense. "'I thought the most expensive hobby in the world was standing for Parliament,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'They said the last unsuccessful candidate at Middlemarch—Giles, wasn't his name—spent ten thousand pounds and failed because he did not bribe enough. What a bitter reflection for a man!' "'Somebody was saying,' said the rector laughingly, that East Retford was nothing to Middlemarch for bribery. "'Nothing of the kind,' said Mr. Brooke. "'The Tories bribe, you know. Hawley and his set bribe with treating, hot codlings, and that sort of thing. And they bring the voters drunk to the poll. But they are not going to have it their own way in the future, not in future, you know. Middlemarch is a little backward, I admit. The freemen are a little backward. But we shall educate them.' We shall bring them on, you know. The best people there are on our side. Holly says you have men on your side who will do you harm, remarked Sir James. He says Bulstrode the banker will do you harm. 
"'And if that got you pelted,' interposed Mrs. Cadwallader, "'half the rotten eggs would mean hatred of your committee man. "'Good heavens! Think what it must be to be pelted for wrong opinions. "'And I seem to remember a story of a man they pretended to chair, "'and let him fall into a dust-heap on purpose.' "'Pelting is nothing to their finding holes in one's coat,' said the rector. "'I confess that's what I should be afraid of.' if we parsons had to stand at the hustings for preferment, I should be afraid of their reckoning up all my fishing days. Upon my word, I think the truth is the hardest missile one can be pelted with. The fact is, said Sir James, if a man goes into public life, he must be prepared for the consequences. He must make himself proof against calumny. My dear Chetham, that is all very fine, you know, said Mr. Brooke. But how will you make yourself proof against calumny? You should read history, look at ostracism, persecution, martyrdom, and that kind of thing. They always happen to the best men, you know. But what is that in Horace? Fiat justitia, ruat, something or other. Exactly, said Sir James, with a little more heat than usual. What I mean by being proof against calumny is being able to point to the fact as a contradiction. "'And it is not martyrdom to pay bills that one has run into oneself, said Mrs. Cadwallader. But it was Sir James' evident annoyance that most stirred Mr. Brooke. "'Well, you know, Chetham,' he said, rising, taking up his hat and leaning on his stick, "'you and I have a different system. You are all for outlay with your farms.' I don't want to make out that my system is good under all circumstances, under all circumstances, you know. There ought to be a new valuation made from time to time, said Sir James. Returns are very well occasionally, but I like a fair valuation. What do you say, Cadwallader? I agree with you. If I were Brooke, I would choke the trumpet at once by getting Garth to make a new valuation of the farms, and giving him carte blanche about gates and repairs— that's my view of the political situation, said the rector, broadening himself by sticking his thumbs in his armholes and laughing towards Mr. Brooke. That's a showy sort of thing to do, you know, said Mr. Brooke, but I should like you to tell me of another landlord who has distressed his tenants for arrears as little as I have. I let the old tenants stay on. I'm uncommonly easy, let me tell you, uncommonly easy. I have my own ideas, and I take my stand on them, you know. A man who does that is always charged with eccentricity, inconsistency, and that kind of thing. When I change my line of action, I shall follow my own ideas. After that, Mr. Brooke remembered that there was a packet which he had omitted to send off from the Grange, and he bade everybody hurriedly good-bye. "'I didn't want to take a liberty with Brooke,' said Sir James. "'I see he is nettled.' but as to what he says about old tenants, in point of fact no new tenant would take the farms on the present terms. "'I have a notion that he will be brought round in time,' said the rector. "'But you were pulling one way, Eleanor, and we were pulling another. You wanted to frighten him away from expense, and we want to frighten him into it. Better let him try to be popular and see that his character as a landlord stands in his way.' I don't think it signifies two straws about the pioneer, or Ladislaw, or Brooks speechifying to the Middlemarchers. But it does signify about the parishioners in Tipton being comfortable. 
"'Excuse me. It is you two who are on the wrong tack,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'You should have proved to him that he loses money by bad management, and then we should all have pulled together. If you put him a horseback on politics, I warn you of the consequences. It was all very well to ride on sticks at home and call them ideas.' End of chapter 38《Chapter Thirty Nine of Middlemarch》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. As if I have, you also do, virtue attired in woman see, and dare love that, and say so too, and forget the he and she. And if this love, though placed so, from profane men you hide which will no faith on this bestow or if they do deride then you have done a braver thing than all the worthies did and a braver thence will spring which is to keep that hid dr dunn sir james chettam's mind was not fruitful in devices but his growing anxiety to act on brooke once brought close to his constant belief in Dorothea's capacity for influence, became formative, and issued a little plan, namely, to plead Celia's indisposition as a reason for fetching Dorothea by herself to the hall, and to leave her at the Grange with the carriage on the way, after making her fully aware of the situation concerning the management of the estate. In this way it happened that one day near four o'clock, when Mr. Brooke and Ladislaw were seated in the library, the door opened and Mrs. Casaubon was announced. Will, the moment before, had been low in the depths of boredom, and obliged to help Mr. Brooke in arranging documents about hanging sheep-stealers, was exemplifying the power our minds have of riding several horses at once by inwardly arranging measures towards getting a lodging for himself in Middlemarch, and cutting short his constant residence at the Grange, while there flitted through all these steadier images a tickling vision of a sheep-stealing epoch written with Homeric particularity. When Mrs. Casaubon was announced, he started up as from an electric shock, and felt a tingling at his finger-ends. Anyone observing him would have seen a change in his complexion, in the adjustment of his facial muscles, in the vividness of his glance which might have made them imagine that every molecule in his body had passed the message of a magic touch. And so it had. For effective magic is transcendent nature, and who shall measure the subtlety of those touches which convey the quality of soul as well as body, and make a man's passion for one woman differ from his passion for another as joy in the morning light over valley and river and white mountain-tops differs from joy among Chinese lanterns and glass panels. Will, too, was made of very impressible stuff. The bow of a violin drawn near him cleverly would at one stroke change the aspect of the world for him, and his point of view shifted as easily as his mood. Dorothea's entrance was the freshness of morning. "'Well, my dear, this is pleasant now,' said Mr. Brooke, meeting and kissing her. 
You have left Casabon with his books, I suppose. That's right. We must not have you get too learned for a woman, you know. There is no fear of that, uncle, said Dorothea, turning to Will and shaking hands with open cheerfulness, while she made no other form of greeting, but went on answering her uncle. I am very slow. When I want to be busy with books, I am often playing truant among my thoughts. I find it is not so easy to be learned as to plan cottages. She seated herself beside her uncle opposite to Will, and was evidently preoccupied with something that made her almost unmindful of him. He was ridiculously disappointed, as if he had imagined that her coming had anything to do with him. "'Why, yes, my dear, it was quite your hobby to draw plans. But it was good to break that off a little. Hobbies are apt to run away with us, you know. It doesn't do to be run away with. We must keep the reins.' I have never let myself be run away with. I always pulled up. That is what I tell Ladislaw. He and I are alike, you know. He likes to go into everything. We are working at capital punishment. We shall do a great deal together, Ladislaw and I. Yes, said Dorothea, with characteristic directness. Sir James has been telling me that he is in hope of seeing a great change made soon in your management of the estate that you are thinking of having the farms valued, and repairs made, and the cottages improved, so that Tipton may look quite another place. Oh, how happy, she went on, clasping her hands with a return to that more childlike, impetuous manner, which had been subdued since her marriage. If I were at home still, I should take to writing again, that I might go about with you and see all that. And you are going to engage Mr. Garth, who praised my cottages, Sir James says. Chetham is a little hasty, my dear, said Mr. Brooke, colouring slightly. A little hasty, you know. I never said I should do anything of the kind. I never said that I should not do it, you know. He only feels confident that you will do it, said Dorothea, in a voice as clear and unhesitating as that of a young chorister chanting a credo. Because you mean to enter Parliament as a member who cares for the improvement of the people, and one of the first things to be made better is the state of the land and the laborers. Think of Kit Downs, uncle, who lives with his wife and seven children in a house with one sitting-room and one bedroom hardly larger than this table. And those poor Dagleys, in their tumble-down farmhouse, where they live in the back kitchen and leave the other rooms to the rats. That is one reason why I did not like the pictures here, dear uncle, which you think me stupid about. I used to come from the village with all that dirt and coarse ugliness like a pain within me, and the simpering pictures in the drawing-room seemed to me like a wicked attempt to find delight in what is false, while we don't mind how hard the truth is for our neighbors outside our walls. I think we have no right to come forward and urge wider changes for good until we have tried to alter the evils which lie under our own hands." Dorothea had gathered emotion as she went on, and had forgotten everything except the relief of pouring forth her feelings unchecked, an experience once habitual with her, but hardly ever present since her marriage, which had been a perpetual struggle of energy with fear. For the moment, Will's admiration was accompanied with a chilling sense of remoteness. A man is seldom ashamed of feeling that he cannot love a woman so well when he sees a certain greatness in her. 
nature having intended greatness for men. But nature has sometimes made sad oversights in carrying out her intention, as in the case of good Mr. Brooke, whose masculine consciousness was at this moment in rather a stammering condition under the eloquence of his niece. He could not immediately find any other mode of expressing himself than that of rising, fixing his eyeglass, and fingering the papers before him. At last he said, "'There is something in what you say, my dear, something in what you say, but not everything, eh, Ladislaw? You and I don't like our pictures and statues being found fault with. Young ladies are a little ardent, you know, a little one-sided, my dear. Fine art, poetry, that kind of thing, elevates a nation. Emolite mores. You understand a little Latin now, but, eh, what?' These interrogatives were addressed to the footman who had come in to say that the keeper had found one of Dagley's boys with a leveret in his hand just killed. "'I'll come, I'll come. I shall let him off easily, you know,' said Mr. Brooke aside to Dorothea, shuffling away very cheerfully. "'I hope you feel how right this change is that I—that Sir James wishes for,' said Dorothea to Will, as soon as her uncle was gone. I do, now I have heard you speak about it. I shall not forget what you have said. But can you think of something else at this moment? I may not have another opportunity of speaking to you about what has occurred, said Will, rising with a movement of impatience, and holding the back of his chair with both hands. Pray tell me what it is, said Dorothea, anxiously, also rising and going to the open window, where Monk was looking in, panting and wagging his tail. She leaned her back against the window-frame and laid her hand on the dog's head, for though, as we know, she was not fond of pets that must be held in the hands or trodden on, she was always attentive to the feelings of dogs, and very polite if she had to decline their advances. Will followed her only with his eyes, and said, "'I presume you know that Mr. Casaubon has forbidden me to go to his house.' "'No, I did not,' said Dorothea, after a moment's pause. She was evidently much moved. "'I am very, very sorry,' she added mournfully. She was thinking of what Will had no knowledge of, the conversation between her and her husband in the darkness, and she was anew smitten with hopelessness that she could influence Mr. Casaubon's action. But the marked expression of her sorrow convinced Will that it was not all given to him personally, and that Dorothea had not been visited by the idea that Mr. Casaubon's dislike and jealousy of him turned upon herself. He felt an odd mixture of delight and vexation, of delight that he could dwell and be cherished in her thought as in a pure home, without suspicion and without stint, of vexation because he was of too little account with her, was not formidable enough, was treated with an unhesitating benevolence which did not flatter him. But his dread of any change in Dorothea was stronger than his discontent, and he began to speak again in a tone of mere explanation. Mr. Casaubon's reason is, his displeasure at my taking a position here which he considers unsuited to my rank as his cousin. I have told him that I cannot give way on this point. It is a little too hard on me to expect that my course in life is to be hampered by prejudices which I think ridiculous. 
obligation may be stretched till it is no better than a brand of slavery stamped on us when we were too young to know its meaning. I would not have accepted the position if I had not meant to make it useful and honorable. I am not bound to regard family dignity in any other light. Dorothea felt wretched. She thought her husband altogether in the wrong, on more grounds than Will had mentioned. "'It is better for us not to speak on the subject,' she said, with a tremulousness not common in her voice, since you and Mr. Casabon disagree. You intend to remain?' She was looking out on the lawn with melancholy meditation. "'Yes, but I shall hardly ever see you now,' said Will, in a tone of almost boyish complaint. "'No,' said Dorothea, turning her eyes full upon him. "'Hardly ever. But I shall hear of you. I shall know what you are doing for my uncle.' "'I shall hardly know anything about you,' said Will. "'No one will tell me anything.' "'Oh, my life is very simple,' said Dorothea, her lips curling with an exquisite smile, which irradiated her melancholy. "'I am always at Lowick.' "'That is a dreadful imprisonment,' said Will, impetuously. "'No, don't think like that,' said Dorothea. "'I have no longings.' He did not speak, but she replied to some change in his expression. "'I mean, for myself. Except that I should not like to have so much more than my share without doing anything for others. But I have a belief of my own, and it comforts me.' "'What is that?' said Will, rather jealous of the belief." that by desiring what is perfectly good, even when we don't quite know what it is and cannot do what we would, we are part of the divine power against evil, widening the skirts of light and making the struggle with darkness narrower. That is a beautiful mysticism. It is a—please do not call it by any name, said Dorothea, putting out her hands entreatingly. You will say it is Persian or something else geographical. It is my life. I have found it out, and cannot part with it. I have always been finding out my religion since I was a little girl. I used to pray so much. Now I hardly ever pray. I try not to have desires merely for myself, because they may not be good for others, and I have too much already. I only told you that you might know well how my days go at Lowick. God bless you for telling me, said Will ardently and rather wondering at himself. They were looking at each other like two fond children who were talking confidentially of birds. "'What is your religion?' said Dorothea. "'I mean, not what you know about religion, but the belief that helps you most.' "'To love what is good and beautiful when I see it,' said Will. "'But I am a rebel. I don't feel bound, as you do, to submit to what I don't like.' "'But if you like what is good, that comes to the same thing,' said Dorothea, smiling. "'Now you are subtle,' said Will. "'Yes, Mr. Casbon often says I am too subtle.' "'I don't feel as if I were subtle,' said Dorothea, playfully. "'But how long my uncle is! I must go and look for him. I must really go on to the hall. Celia's expecting me.' Will offered to tell Mr. Brooke who presently came and said that he would step into the carriage and go with Dorothea as far as Dagley's, to speak about the small delinquent who had been caught with the leveret. Dorothea renewed the subject of the estate as they drove along, but Mr. Brooke, not being taken unawares, got the talk under his own control. 
Chetham, now, he replied, he finds fault with me, my dear, but I should not preserve my game if it were not for Chetham, and he can't say that that expense is for the sake of the tenants, you know. It's a little against my feeling. Poaching, now, if you come to look into it, I have often thought of getting up the subject. Not long ago Flavel, the Methodist preacher, was brought up for knocking down a hare that came across his path when he and his wife were walking out together. He was pretty quick, and knocked it on the neck. That was very brutal, I think, said Dorothea. Well, now, it seemed rather black to me, I confess, in a Methodist preacher, you know. And Johnson said, You may judge what a hypocrite he is. And upon my word, I thought Flavel looked very little like the highest style of man, as somebody calls the Christian, Young, the poet Young, I think. You know Young? Well, now, Flavel, in his shabby black gaiters, pleading that he thought the Lord had sent him and his wife a good dinner, and he had a right to knock it down, though not a mighty hunter before the Lord, as Nimrod was, I assure you it was rather comic. Fielding would have made something of it, or Scott now. Scott might have worked it up. But really, when I came to think of it, I couldn't help liking that the fellow should have a bit of hair to say grace over. It's all a matter of prejudice. Prejudice with the law on its side, you know, about the stick and the gaiters and so on. However, it doesn't do to reason about things, and law is law. But I got Johnson to be quiet, and I hushed the matter up. I doubt whether Chetham would not have been more severe." and yet he comes down on me as if I were the hardest man in the county. But here we are at Dagley's. Mr. Brooke got down at a farmyard gate, and Dorothea drove on. It is wonderful how much uglier things will look when we only suspect that we are blamed for them. Even our own persons in the glass are apt to change their aspect for us after we have heard some frank remark on their less admirable points, and on the other hand, it is astonishing how pleasantly conscience takes our encroachments on those who never complain or have nobody to complain for them. Dagley's homestead never before looked so dismal to Mr. Brooke as it did to-day, with his mind thus sore about the fault-finding of the trumpet, echoed by Sir James. It is true that an observer, under that softening influence of the fine arts which makes other people's hardships picturesque, might have been delighted with this homestead called Freeman's End. The old house had dormer windows in the dark red roof, two of the chimneys were choked with ivy, the large porch was blocked up with bundles of sticks, and half the windows were closed with grey, worm-eaten shutters about which the jasmine boughs grew in wild luxuriance. The mouldering garden wall with hollyhocks peeping over it was a perfect study of highly mingled subdued colour and there was an aged goat, kept doubtless on interesting superstitious grounds, lying against the open back kitchen door. The mossy thatch of the cowshed, the broken grey barn doors, the pauper labourers in ragged breeches who had nearly finished unloading a wagon of corn into the barn ready for early thrashing, the scanty dairy of cows being tethered for milking and leaving one half of the shed in brown emptiness, the very pigs and white ducks seeming to wander about the uneven neglected yard as if in low spirits from feeding on a too meagre quality of rinsings. All these objects under the quiet light of a sky marbled with high clouds 
would have made a sort of picture which we all have paused over as a charming bit, touching other sensibilities than those which are stirred by the depression of the agricultural interest, with the sad lack of farming capital, as seen constantly in the newspapers of that time. But these troublesome associations were just now strongly present to Mr. Brooke, and spoiled the scene for him. Mr. Dagley himself made a figure in the landscape, carrying a pitchfork and wearing his milking hat, a very old beaver flattened in front. His coat and breeches were the best he had, and he would not have been wearing them on this weekday occasion if he had not been to market and returned later than usual, having given himself the rare treat of dining at the public table of the Blue Bull. How he came to fall into this extravagance would perhaps be a matter of wonderment to himself on the morrow, but before dinner something in the state of the country, a slight pause in the harvest before the far dips were cut, the stories about the new king and the numerous handbills on the walls had seemed to warrant a little recklessness. It was a maxim about Middlemarch, and regarded as self-evident, that good meat should have good drink which last Dagley interpreted as plenty of table-ale well followed up by rum and water. These liquors have so far truth in them that they were not false enough to make poor Dagley seem merry. They only made his discontent less tongue-tied than usual. He had also taken too much in the shape of muddy political talk, a stimulant dangerously disturbing to his farming conservatism which consisted in holding that whatever is, is bad, and any change is likely to be worse. He was flushed, and his eyes had a decidedly quarrelsome stare as he stood grasping his pitchfork, while the landlord approached with his easy shuffling walk, one hand in his trouser pocket, and the other swinging round a thin walking-stick. "'Dagley, my good fellow,' began Mr. Brooke, conscious that he was going to be very friendly about the boy. "'Oh, I am a good feller, am I? Thank ye, sir, thank ye,' said Dagley, with a loud snarling irony which made Fag the sheep-dog stir from his seat and prick his ears. But seeing Monk enter the yard after some outside loitering, Fag seated himself again in an attitude of observation. "'I'm glad to hear I'm a good feller.' Mr. Brooke reflected that it was market-day, and that his worthy tenant had probably been dining— but saw no reason why he should not go on, since he could take the precaution of repeating what he had to say to Mrs. Dagley. "'Your little lad Jacob has been caught killing a lever at Dagley. I have told Johnson to lock him up in the empty stable for an hour or two, just to frighten him, you know. But he will be brought home by and by, before night. You'll just look after him, will you, and give him a reprimand, you know?' "'No, I won't. I'll be dead if I'll lither my boy to please you or anybody else.' not a few as twenty landlords instead of one, and that a bad un. Dagley's words were loud enough to summon his wife to the back kitchen door, the only entrance ever used, and one always open except in bad weather, and Mr. Brooke saying soothingly, "'Well, well, I'll speak to your wife. I didn't mean beating, you know,' turned to walk to the house. But Dagley, only the more inclined to have his say with the gentleman who walked away from him, followed at once, with Fag slouching at his heels, and sullenly evading some small and probably charitable advances on the part of Monk. "'How do you do, Mrs. Dagley?' said Mr. Brooke, making some haste. "'I came to tell you about your boy. 
I don't want you to give him the stick, you know. He was careful to speak quite plainly this time. Overworked Mrs. Dagley, a thin, worn woman, from whose life pleasure had so entirely vanished that she had not even Sunday clothes which could give her satisfaction in preparing for church, had already had a misunderstanding with her husband since he had come home, and was in low spirits, expecting the worst. But her husband was beforehand in answering. "'No, nor he won't have the stick, whether you want it or no,' pursued Dagley, throwing out his voice, as if he wanted it to hit hard. "'You've got no call to come and talk about sticks of these premises, as you won't give a stick toward mending. Go to Middlemarch to ax for your character.' "'You'd far better hold your tongue, Dagley,' said the wife, "'and not kick your own trough over. "'When a man as is father of a family "'has been and spent money at market "'and made himself the worse for liquor, "'he's done enough mischief for one day. "'But I should like to know what my boy's done, sir.' "'Never do you mind what he's done,' said Dagley, more fiercely. "'It's my business to speak and not yourn. "'And I will speak, too. "'I have my say, supper or no. "'And what I say is—' as I've lived upon your ground from my father and grandfather afore me, and have dropped our money into it, and me and my children might lie and rot on the ground for top-dressing as we can't find the money to buy if the king wasn't to put a stop. My good fellow, you're drunk, you know, said Mr. Brooke, confidentially, but not judiciously. Another day, another day, he added, turning as if to go. But Dagley immediately fronted him, and Fag at his heels growled low as his master's voice grew louder and more insulting, while Monk also drew close in silent, dignified watch. The laborers on the wagon were pausing to listen, and it seemed wiser to be quite passive than to attempt a ridiculous flight pursued by a bawling man. "'I'm no more drunk nor are you, nor so much,' said Dagley. "'I can carry my liquor, and I know what I mean, and I mean as the king'll put a stop to it. For them say it as knows it, as there's to be a reform, and them landlords as never done the right thing by their tenants, will be treated in that way as they'll have to scuttle off. And there's them in Middlemarch knows what the reform is, and as knows who'll have to scuttle. Says they, I know who your landlord is, and says I, I hope you're the better for knowing him, I aren't. Says they, he's a close-fisted un. Aye, aye, says I. He's a man for the reform, says they. That's what they says. And I made out what the reform were, and it were to send you and your likes a scuttling and with pretty strong smelling things, too. And you may do as you like now, for I'm none afeard on you. And you'd better let my boy alone, and look to your sin, for the reform has got upon your back. That's what I've got to say, concluded Mr. Dagley striking his fork into the ground with a firmness which proved inconvenient as he tried to draw it up again. At this last action Monk began to bark loudly, and it was a moment for Mr. Brooke to escape. He walked out of the yard as quickly as he could, in some amazement at the novelty of his situation. He had never been insulted on his own land before, and had been inclined to regard himself as a general favorite. We are all apt to do so, when we think of our own amiability more than of what other people are likely to want of us. When he had quarreled with Caleb Garth twelve years before, he had thought that the tenants would be pleased at the landlord's taking everything into his own hands. Some who follow the narrative of his experience 
may wonder at the midnight darkness of Mr. Dagley, but nothing was easier in those times than for a hereditary farmer of his grade to be ignorant, in spite somehow of having a rector in the twin parish who was a gentleman to the backbone, a curate nearer at hand who preached more learnedly than the rector, a landlord who had gone into everything, especially fine art and social improvement, and all the lights of Middlemarch only three miles off. As to the facility which mortals escape knowledge, try an average acquaintance in the intellectual blaze of London, and consider what that eligible person for a dinner-party would have been if he had learned scant skill in summing from the parish clerk of Tipton, and read a chapter in the Bible with immense difficulty, because such names as Isaiah or Apollos remained unmanageable after twice spelling. Poor Dagley read a few verses sometimes on a Sunday evening, and the world was at least not darker to him than it had been before. Some things he knew thoroughly, namely, the slovenly habits of farming, and the awkwardness of weather, stock, and crops at Freeman's End, so called apparently by way of sarcasm, to imply that a man was free to quit if he chose, but there was no earthly beyond open to him. End of chapter 39 Chapter 40 of Middlemarch by George Eliot This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat Wise in his daily work was he, to fruits of diligence, and not to faiths or polity he plied his utmost sense. These perfect in their little parts, whose work is all their prize. Without them how could laws or arts or towered cities rise? In watching effects, if only of an electric battery, it is often necessary to change our place and examine a particular mixture or group at some distance from the point where the movement we are interested in was set up. The group I am moving towards is at Caleb Garth's breakfast-table, in the large parlour where the maps and desk were, father, mother, and five of the children. Mary was just now at home waiting for a situation, while Christy, the boy next to her, was getting cheap learning and cheap fare in Scotland, having to his father's disappointment taken to books instead of that sacred calling business. The letters had come, nine costly letters, for which the postman had been paid three and twopence, and Mr. Garth was forgetting his tea and toast while he read his letters and laid them open one above the other, sometimes swaying his head slowly, sometimes screwing up his mouth in inward debate, but not forgetting to cut off a large red seal unbroken, which Letty snatched up like an eager terrier. The talk among the rest went on unrestrainedly, for nothing disturbed Caleb's absorption except shaking the table when he was writing. Two letters of the nine had been for Mary. After reading them, she had passed them to her mother, and sat playing with her teaspoon absently, till with a sudden recollection she returned to her sewing, which she had kept on her lap during breakfast. "'Oh, don't sew, Mary,' said Ben, pulling her arm down. "'Make me a peacock with this bread-crumb.' He had been kneading a small mass for the purpose. "'No, no mischief,' said Mary good-humouredly, while she pricked his hand lightly with her needle. "'Try and mould it yourself. You have seen me do it often enough. I must get this sewing done. 
It is for Rosamond Vincy she's to be married next week, and she can't be married without this handkerchief, Mary ended merrily, amused with the last notion. Why can't she marry? said Letty, seriously interested in this mystery, and pushing her head so close to her sister that Mary now turned the threatening needle towards Letty's nose. "'Because this is one of a dozen, and without it there would only be eleven, said Mary, with a grave air of explanation, so that Letty sank back with a sense of knowledge. "'Have you made up your mind, my dear?' said Mrs. Garth, laying the letters down. "'I shall go to the school at York,' said Mary. "'I am less unfit to teach in a school than in a family. I like to teach classes best. And you see, I must teach. There is nothing else to be done.' "'Teaching seems to me the most delightful work in the world,' said Mrs. Garth, with a touch of rebuke in her tone. "'I could understand your objection to it if you had not knowledge enough, Mary, or if you disliked children.' "'I suppose we never quite understand why another dislikes what we like, mother,' said Mary, rather curtly. "'I am not fond of a schoolroom. I like the outside world better. It is a very inconvenient fault of mine.' "'It must be very stupid to be always in a girls' school,' said Alfred. "'Such a set of nincompoops, like Mrs. Ballard's pupils, walking two and two. "'And they have no games worth playing at,' said Jim. "'They can neither throw nor leap. "'I don't wonder at Mary's not liking it.' "'What is it that Mary doesn't like, eh?' said the father, "'looking over his spectacles and pausing before he opened his next letter. "'Being among a lot of nincompoop girls,' said Alfred. "'Is it the situation you had heard of, Mary?' said Caleb, gently looking at his daughter. "'Yes, father, the school at York. I have determined to take it. It is quite the best. Thirty-five pounds a year, and extra pay for teaching the smallest strummers at the piano.' "'Poor child! I wish she could stay at home with us, Susan,' said Caleb, looking plaintively at his wife. "'Mary would not be happy without doing her duty,' said Mrs. Garth, magisterially, conscious of having done her own. "'It wouldn't make me happy to do such a nasty duty as that,' said Alfred, at which Mary and her father laughed silently. But Mrs. Garth said gravely, "'Do find a fitter word than nasty, my dear Alfred, for everything that you think disagreeable. And I suppose that Mary could help you go to Mr. Hamner's with the money she gets?' "'That seems to me a great shame. But she's an old brick,' said Alfred rising from his chair, and pulling Mary's head backward to kiss her. Mary colored and laughed, but could not conceal that the tears were coming. Caleb, looking on over his spectacles, with the angles of his eyebrows falling, had an expression of mingled delight and sorrow as he returned to the opening of his letter. And even Mrs. Garth, her lips curling with a calm contentment, allowed that inappropriate language to pass without correction, although Ben immediately took it up and sang, "'She's an old brick, old brick, old brick,' to a cantering measure, which he beat out with his fist on Mary's arm. But Mrs. Garth's eyes were now drawn towards her husband, who was already deep in the letter he was reading. His face had an expression of grave surprise, which alarmed her a little, but he did not like to be questioned while he was reading, and she remained anxiously watching till she saw him suddenly shaken by a little joyous laugh as he turned back to the beginning of the letter, and, looking at her above his spectacles, said in a low tone, 
"'What do you think, Susan?' She went and stood behind him, putting her hand on his shoulder while they read the letter together. It was from Sir James Chetham, offering to Mr. Garth the management of the family estates at Freshet and elsewhere, and adding that Sir James had been requested by Mr. Brooke of Tipton to ascertain whether Mr. Garth would be disposed at the same time to resume the agency of the Tipton property. The baronet added, in very obliging words, that he himself was particularly desirous of seeing the Freshet and Tipton estates under the same management, and he hoped to be able to show that the double agency might be held on terms agreeable to Mr. Garth, whom he would be glad to see at the hall at twelve o'clock on the following day. "'He writes handsomely, doesn't he, Susan?' said Caleb, turning his eyes upward to his wife, who raised her hand from his shoulder to his ear, while she rested her chin on his head. "'Brooke didn't like to ask me himself, I can see,' he continued, laughing silently. "'Here is an honour to your father, children,' said Mrs. Garth, looking round at the five pairs of eyes, all fixed on the parents. "'He is asked to take a post again by those who dismissed him long ago. That shows that he did his work well, so that they feel the want of him.' "'Like Cincinnatus! Hooray!' said Ben, riding on his chair, with a pleasant confidence that discipline was relaxed. "'Will they come to fetch him, mother?' said Letty thinking of the mayor and corporation in their robes. Mrs. Garth patted Letty's head and smiled, but seeing that her husband was gathering up his letters and likely soon to be out of reach in that sanctuary business, she pressed his shoulder and said emphatically, "'Now, mind you ask fair pay, Caleb.' "'Oh, yes,' said Caleb, in a deep voice of assent, as if it would be unreasonable to suppose anything else of him. "'It'll come to between four and five hundred, the two together.' Then, with a little start of remembrance, he said, "'Mary, write and give up that school. Stay and help your mother. I'm as pleased as Punch now that I've thought of that.' No manner could have been less like that of Punch triumphant than Caleb's, but his talents did not lie in finding phrases, though he was very particular about his letter-writing, and regarded his wife as a treasury of correct language. There was almost an uproar among the children now, and Mary held up the cambric embroidery towards her mother entreatingly, that it might be put out of reach while the boys dragged her into a dance. Mrs. Garth, in placid joy, began to put the cups and plates together, while Caleb, pushing his chair from the table, as if he were going to move to the desk, still sat holding his letters in his hand, and looking on the ground meditatively, stretching out the fingers of his left hand, according to a mute language of his own. At last he said, it's a thousand pities Christie didn't take to business, Susan. I shall want help by and by. And Alfred must go off to the engineering. I've made up my mind to that. He fell into a meditation and finger rhetoric again for a little while, and then continued, I shall make Brooke have new agreements with the tenants, and I shall draw up a rotation of crops, and I'll lay a wager we can get fine bricks out of the clay at Bott's Corner. I must look into that. It would cheapen the repairs. It's a fine bit of work, Susan. A man without a family would be glad to do it for nothing. Mind you don't, though, said his wife, lifting up her finger. No, no, but it's a fine thing to come to a man when he's seen into the nature of business, to have the chance of getting a bit of the country into good fettle, as they say, 
and putting men into the right way with their farming, and getting a bit of good contriving and solid building done, that those who are living and those who will come after will be the better for. I'd sooner have it than a fortune. I hold it the most honorable work that is. Here Caleb laid down his letters, thrust his fingers between the buttons of his waistcoat, and sat upright, but presently proceeded with some awe in his voice, and moving his head slowly aside. It's a great gift of God, Susan. That it is, Caleb, said his wife, with answering fervor, and it will be a blessing to your children to have had a father who did such work, a father whose good work remains, though his name may be forgotten. She could not say anything more to him then about the pay. In the evening, when Caleb, rather tired with his day's work, was seated in silence with his pocket-book open on his knee, while Mrs. Garth and Mary were at their sewing, and Letty in a corner was whispering a dialogue with her doll, Mr. Fairbrother came up the orchard walk, dividing the bright August lights and shadows with the tufted grass and the apple-tree boughs. We know that he was fond of his parishioners, the Garths, and he thought Mary worth mentioning to Lydgate. He used to the full the clergyman's privilege of disregarding the Middlemarch discrimination of ranks, and always told his mother that Mrs. Garth was more of a lady than any matron in the town. Still, you see, he spent his evening at the Vincy's, where the matron, though less of a lady, presided over a well-lit drawing-room and whist. In those days human intercourse was not determined solely by respect. But the vicar did heartily respect the Garths, and a visit from him was no surprise to that family. Nevertheless, he accounted for it even while he was shaking hands by saying, "'I come as an envoy, Mrs. Garth. I have something to say to you and Garth on behalf of Fred Vincy.' The fact is, poor fellow, he continued, as he seated himself and looked round with his bright glance at the three who were listening to him, he has taken me into his confidence. Mary's heart beat rather quickly. She wondered how far Fred's confidence had gone. We haven't seen the lad for months, said Caleb. I couldn't think what was become of him. He has been away on a visit, said the vicar, because home was a little too hot for him and Lydgate told his mother that the poor fellow must not begin to study yet. But yesterday he came and poured himself out to me. I am very glad he did, because I have seen him grow up from a youngster of fourteen, and I am so much at home in the house that the children are like nephews and nieces to me. But it is a difficult case to advise upon. However, he has asked me to come and tell you that he is going away and that he is so miserable about his debt to you and his inability to pay that he can't bear to come himself even to bid you good-bye. "'Tell him it doesn't signify a farthing,' said Caleb, waving his hand. "'We've had the pinch and have got over it. And now I'm going to be as rich as a Jew.' "'Which means,' said Mrs. Garth, smiling at the vicar, "'that we are going to have enough to bring up the boys well and to keep Mary at home.' "'What is the treasure-trove?' said Mr. Fairbrother. "'I'm going to be agent for two estates, Freshet and Tipton, and perhaps for a pretty little bit of land in Lowick besides. It's all the same family connection, and employment spreads like water if it's once set going. It makes me very happy, Mr. Fairbrother,' here Caleb threw back his head a little, and spread his arms on the elbows of his chair, 
that I've got an opportunity again with the letting of the land, and carrying out a notion or two with improvements. It's a most uncommonly cramping thing, as I've often told Susan, to sit on horseback and look over the hedges at the wrong thing, and not to be able to put your hand to it to make it right. What people do who go into politics I can't think. It drives me almost mad to see mismanagement over only a few hundred acres. It was seldom that Caleb volunteered so long a speech, but his happiness had the effect of mountain air. His eyes were bright, and the words came without effort. "'I congratulate you heartily, Garth,' said the vicar. "'This is the best sort of news I could have to carry to Fred Vincy, for he dwelt a good deal on the injury he had done you in causing you to part with money, robbing you of it, he said, which you wanted for other purposes.' I wish Fred were not such an idle dog. He has some very good points, and his father is a little hard upon him. "'Where is he going?' said Mrs. Garth, rather coldly. "'He means to try again for his degree, and he is going up to study before term. I have advised him to do that. I don't urge him to enter the church, on the contrary. But if he will go and work so as to pass— that will be some guarantee that he has energy and a will, and he is quite at sea, he doesn't know what else to do. So far he will please his father, and I have promised in the meantime to try and reconcile Vincy to his son's adopting some other line of life. Fred says frankly he is not fit for a clergyman, and I would do anything I could to hinder a man from the fatal step of choosing the wrong profession. He quoted to me what you said, Miss Garth. Do you remember it? Mr. Fairbrother used to say Mary instead of Miss Garth, but it was part of his delicacy to treat her with the more deference, because, according to Mrs. Vincy's phrase, she worked for her bread. Mary felt uncomfortable, but, determined to take the matter lightly, answered at once, I have said so many impertinent things to Fred, we are such old playfellows. You said, according to him, that he would be one of those ridiculous clergymen who helped to make the whole clergy ridiculous. Really, that was so cutting that I felt a little cut myself. Caleb laughed. She gets her tongue from you, Susan, he said with some enjoyment. Not its flippancy, father, said Mary, quickly, fearing that her mother would be displeased. It is rather too bad of Fred to repeat my flippant speeches to Mr. Fairbrother. "'It was certainly a hasty speech, my dear,' said Mrs. Garth, with whom speaking evil of dignities was a high misdemeanor. "'We should not value our vicar the less, because there was a ridiculous curate in the next parish.' "'There's something in what she says, though,' said Caleb, not disposed to have Mary's sharpness undervalued. "'A bad workman of any sort makes his fellows mistrusted. Things hang together,' he added, looking on the floor, and moving his feet uneasily with a sense that words were scantier than thoughts. "'Clearly,' said the vicar, amused, "'by being contemptible we set men's minds to the tune of contempt. I certainly agree with Miss Garth's view of the matter, whether I am condemned by it or not. But as to Fred Vincy, it is only fair he should be excused a little. Old Featherstone's delusive behavior did help to spoil him.' There was something quite diabolical in not leaving him a farthing after all. 
but Fred has the good taste not to dwell on that. And what he cares most about is having offended you, Mrs. Garth. He supposes you will never think well of him again. I have been disappointed in Fred, said Mrs. Garth, with decision. But I shall be ready to think well of him again when he gives me good reason to do so. At this point Mary went out of the room, taking Letty with her. "'Oh, we must forgive young people when they're sorry,' said Caleb, watching Mary close the door. "'And as you say, Mr. Fairbrother, there was the very devil in that old man. Now Mary's gone out, I must tell you a thing. It's only known to Susan and me, and you'll not tell it again. The old scoundrel wanted Mary to burn one of the wills the very night he died, when she was sitting up with him by herself, and he offered her a sum of money that he had in the box by him, if she would do it. But Mary, you understand, could do no such thing, would not be handling his iron chest, and so on. Now, you see, the will he wanted burnt was this last, so that if Mary had done what he wanted, Fred Vincy would have had ten thousand pounds. The old man did turn to him at the last. That touches poor Mary close. She couldn't help it. She was in the right to do what she did, but she feels, as she says, much as if she had knocked down somebody's property and broken it against her will, when she was rightfully defending herself. I feel with her, somehow, and if I could make any amends to the poor lad, instead of bearing him a grudge for the harm he did us, I should be glad to do it. Now, what is your opinion, sir? Susan doesn't agree with me. She says, Tell what you say, Susan. Mary could not have acted otherwise, even if she had known what would be the effect on Fred, said Mrs. Garth, pausing from her work and looking at Mr. Fairbrother. And she was quite ignorant of it. It seems to me a loss which falls on another because we have done right is not to lie upon our conscience. The vicar did not answer immediately, and Caleb said, It's the feeling. The child feels in that way, and I feel with her. You don't mean your horse to tread on a dog when you're backing out of the way, but it goes through you when it's done. I'm sure Mrs. Garth would agree with you there, said Mr. Fairbrother, who for some reason seemed more inclined to ruminate than to speak. One could hardly say that the feeling you mention about Fred is wrong, or rather mistaken, though no man ought to make a claim on such feeling. Well, well, said Caleb, it's a secret. You will not tell Fred. Certainly not. But I shall carry the other good news, that you can afford the loss he caused you. Mr. Fairbrother left the house soon after, and seeing Mary in the orchard with Letty, went to say good-bye to her. They made a pretty picture in the western light which brought out the brightness of the apples on the old scant-leaved boughs, Mary in her lavender gingham and black ribbons holding a basket, while Letty in her well-worn nankin picked up the fallen apples. If you want to know more particularly how Mary looked, ten to one you will see a face like hers in the crowded street to-morrow, if you are there on the watch. She will not be among those daughters of Zion who are haughty, and walked with stretched-out necks and wanton eyes, mincing as they go. Let all those pass, and fix your eyes on some small, plump, brownish person of firm but quiet carriage, who looks about her, but does not suppose that anybody is looking at her. 
if she has a broad face and a square brow, well-marked eyebrows and curly dark hair, a certain expression of amusement in her glance, which her mouth keeps the secret of, and for the rest features entirely insignificant, take that ordinary but not disagreeable person for a portrait of Mary Garth. If you made her smile, she would show you perfect little teeth. If you made her angry, she would not raise her voice, but would probably say one of the bitterest things you have ever tasted the flavor of. If you did her a kindness, she would never forget it. Mary admired the keen-faced, handsome little vicar in his well-brushed, threadbare clothes more than any man she had had the opportunity of knowing. She had never heard him say a foolish thing, though she knew that he did unwise ones, and perhaps foolish sayings were more objectionable to her than any of Mr. Fairbrother's unwise doings. At least it was remarkable that the actual imperfections of the vicar's clerical character never seemed to call forth the same scorn and dislike which she showed beforehand for the predicted imperfections of the clerical character sustained by Fred Vincy. These irregularities of judgment, I imagine, are found even in riper minds than Mary Garth's. Our impartiality is kept for abstract merit and demerit, which none of us ever saw. Will any one guess towards which of those widely different men Mary had the peculiar woman's tenderness, the one she was most inclined to be severe on, or the contrary? "'Have you any message for your old playfellow, Miss Garth?' said the vicar, as he took a fragrant apple from the basket which she held towards him, and put it in his pocket. "'Something to soften down that harsh judgment. I am going straight to see him.' "'No,' said Mary, shaking her head and smiling. "'If I were to say that he would not be ridiculous as a clergyman, "'I must say that he would be something worse than ridiculous. "'But I am very glad to hear that he is going away to work. "'On the other hand, I am very glad to hear that you are not going away to work. "'My mother, I am sure, will be all the happier if you will come to see her at the vicarage.' You know she is fond of having young people to talk to, and she has a great deal to tell about old times. You will really be doing a kindness. I should like it very much if I may, said Mary. Everything seems too happy for me all at once. I thought it would always be part of my life to long for home, and losing that grievance makes me feel rather empty. I suppose it served instead to fill up my sense of mind. May I go with you, Mary? whispered Letty a most inconvenient child who listened to everything. But she was made exultant by having her chin pinched and her cheek kissed by Mr. Fairbrother, an incident which she narrated to her mother and father. As the vicar walked to Lowick, anyone watching him closely might have seen him twice shrug his shoulders. I think that the rare Englishmen who have this gesture are never of the heavy type for fear of any lumbering instance to the contrary, I will say, hardly ever. They have usually a fine temperament and much tolerance towards the smaller errors of men, themselves inclusive. The vicar was holding an inward dialogue in which he told himself that there was probably something more between Fred and Mary Garth than the regard of old playfellows, 
and replied with a question whether that bit of womanhood were not a great deal too choice for that crude young gentleman. The rejoinder to this was the first shrug. Then he laughed at himself for being likely to have felt jealous, as if he had been a man able to marry, which, added he, it is as clear as any balance sheet that I am not. Whereupon followed the second shrug. What could two men, so different from each other, see in this brown patch, as Mary called herself? It was certainly not her plainness that attracted them, and let all plain young ladies be warned against the dangerous encouragement given them by society to confide in their want of beauty. A human being in this aged nation of ours is a very wonderful whole, the slow creation of long interchanging influences, and charm is a result of two such wholes, the one loving and the one loved. When Mr. and Mrs. Garth were sitting alone, Caleb said, "'Susan, guess what I'm thinking of.' "'The rotation of crops,' said Mrs. Garth, smiling at him above her knitting. "'Or else the back doors of the Tipton cottages.' "'No,' said Caleb gravely. "'I am thinking that I could do a great turn for Fred Vincy. Christie's gone. Alfred will be gone soon. And it will be five years before Jim is ready to take business.' I shall want help, and Fred might come in and learn the nature of things and act under me, and it might be the making of him into a useful man, if he gives up being a parson. What do you think? I think there is hardly anything honest that his family would object to more, said Mrs. Garth decidedly. What care I about their objecting, said Caleb, with a sturdiness which he was apt to show when he had an opinion. The lad is of age and must get his bread. He has sense enough and quickness enough. He likes being on the land, and it's my belief that he could learn business well if he gave his mind to it. But would he? His father and mother wanted him to be a fine gentleman, and I think he has the same sort of feeling himself. They all think us beneath them. And if the proposal came from you, I am sure Mrs. Vincy would say that we wanted Fred for Mary." "'Life is a poor tale, if it is to be settled by nonsense of that sort,' said Caleb, with disgust. "'Yes, but there is a certain pride which is proper, Caleb. I call it improper pride to let fools' notions hinder you from doing a good action. There's no sort of work,' said Caleb, with fervor, putting out his hand and moving it up and down to mark his emphasis, "'that could ever be done well if you minded what fools say.' You must have it inside you that your plan is right, and that plan you must follow. I will not oppose any plan you have set your mind on, Caleb, said Mrs. Garth, who was a firm woman, but knew that there were some points on which her mild husband was yet firmer. Still, it seems to be fixed that Fred is to go back to college. Will it not be better to wait and see what he will choose to do after that? It is not easy to keep people against their will, and you are not yet quite sure enough of your own position, or what you will want. Well, it may be better to wait a bit. But as to my getting plenty of work for two, I'm pretty sure of that. I've always had my hands full with scattered things, and there's always something fresh turning up. Why, only yesterday, 
"'Bless me, I don't think I told you. "'It was rather odd that two men should have been at me on different sides "'to do the same bit of valuing. "'And who do you think they were?' said Caleb, "'taking a pinch of snuff and holding it up between his fingers "'as if it were part of his exposition. "'He was fond of a pinch when it occurred to him, "'but he usually forgot that this indulgence was at his command. "'His wife held down her knitting and looked attentive.' Why, that Rig, or Rig Featherstone, was one. But Bulstrode was before him, so I'm going to do it for Bulstrode. Whether it's mortgage or purchase they're going for, I can't tell yet. Can that man be going to sell the land just left him, which he has taken the name for? said Mrs. Garth. Deuce knows, said Caleb, who never referred the knowledge of discreditable doings to any higher power than the deuce. "'But Bulstrode has been long wanting to get a handsome bit of land under his fingers. "'That I know. "'And it's a difficult matter to get in this part of the country.' "'Caleb scattered his snuff carefully instead of taking it, and then added, "'The ins and outs of things are curious. "'Here is the land they've been all along expecting for Fred, "'which it seems the old man never meant to leave him a foot of, but left it to this side-slip of a son that he kept in the dark, and thought of his sticking there, and vexing everybody as well as he could have vexed him himself if he could have kept alive. I say, it would be curious if it got into Bulstrode's hands after all. The old man hated him, and never would bank with him. "'What reason could the miserable creature have for hating a man whom he had nothing to do with?' said Mrs. Garth. Pooh. "'Where's the use of asking such fellows' reasons?' "'The soul of man,' said Caleb, with the deep tone and grave shake of the head which always came when he used this phrase, "'the soul of man, when it gets fairly rotten, will bear you all sorts of poisonous toadstools, and no eye can see whence came the seed thereof.' It was one of Caleb's quaintnesses, that in his difficulty of finding speech for his thought, he caught, as it were, snatches of diction which he associated with various points of view or states of mind, and, whenever he had a feeling of awe, he was haunted by a sense of biblical phraseology, though he could hardly have given a strict quotation. End of chapter 40《Chapter Forty One of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. By swaggering could I never thrive, for the rain it raineth every day. Twelfth Night. The transactions referred to by Caleb Garth as having gone forward between Mr. Bulstrode and Mr. Joshua Rigg Featherstone concerning the land attached to Stone Court had occasioned the interchange of a letter or two between these personages. Who shall tell what may be the effect of writing? If it happens to have been cut in stone, though it lie face downmost for ages on a forsaken beach, or rest quietly under the drums and tramplings of many conquests, it may end by letting us into the secret of usurpations and other scandals gossiped about long empires ago this world being apparently a huge whispering gallery. Such conditions are often minutely represented in our petty lifetimes, 
as the stone which has been kicked by generations of clowns may come by curious little links of effect under the eyes of a scholar through whose labors it may at last fix the date of invasions and unlock religions so a bit of ink and paper which has long been an innocent wrapping or stop-gap may at last be laid open under one pair of eyes which may have knowledge enough to turn it into the opening of a catastrophe to uriel watching the progress of planetary history from the sun the one result would be just as much of a coincidence as the other having made this rather lofty comparison i am less uneasy in calling attention to the existence of low people by whose interference however little we may like it the course of the world is very much determined it would be well certainly if we could help to reduce their number and something might perhaps be done by not lightly giving occasion to their existence socially speaking joshua rigg would have been generally pronounced a superfluity but those who like peter featherstone never had a copy of themselves demanded are the very last to wait for such a request either in prose or verse the copy in this case bore more of outside resemblance to the mother in whose sex frog features accompanied with fresh-coloured cheeks and a well-rounded figure are compatible with much charm for a certain order of admirers the result is sometimes a frog-faced male desirable surely to no order of intelligent beings especially when he is suddenly brought into evidence to frustrate other people's expectations the very lowest aspect in which a social superfluity can present himself but mr rigg featherstone's low characteristics were all of the sober water-drinking kind from the earliest to the latest hour of the day he was always as sleek neat and cool as the frog he resembled and old peter had secretly chuckled over an offshoot almost more calculating and far more imperturbable than himself i will add that his finger-nails were scrupulously attended to and that he meant to marry a well-educated young lady as yet unspecified whose person was good and whose connections in a solid middle-class way were undeniable thus his nails and modesty were comparable to those of most gentlemen though his ambition had been educated only by the opportunities of a clerk and accountant in the smaller commercial houses of a seaport he thought the rural featherstones very simple absurd people and they in their turn regarded his bringing up in a seaport town as an exaggeration of the monstrosity that their brother peter and still more peter's property should have had such belongings the garden and gravel approach as seen from the two windows of the wainscoted parlor at stone court were never in better trim than now when mr rigg featherstone stood with his hands behind him looking out on these grounds as their master but it seemed doubtful whether he looked out for the sake of contemplation or of turning his back to a person who stood in the middle of the room with his legs considerably apart and his hands in his trouser pockets a person in all respects a contrast to the sleek and cool rig he was a man obviously on the way towards sixty 
very florid and hairy, with much gray in his bushy whiskers and thick curly hair, a stoutish body which showed to disadvantage the somewhat worn joinings of his clothes, and the air of a swaggerer, who would aim at being noticeable even at a show of fireworks, regarding his own remarks on any other person's performance as likely to be more interesting than the performance itself. His name was John Raffles, and he sometimes wrote jocosely W.A.G. after his signature, observing when he did so that he was once taught by Leonard Lamb of Finsbury, who wrote B.A. after his name, and that he, Raffles, originated the witticism of calling that celebrated principal Ba-Lamb. Such were the appearance and mental flavor of Mr. Raffles, both of which seemed to have a stale odor of travelers' rooms in the commercial hotels of that period. "'Come now, Josh,' he was saying in a full, rumbling tone. "'Look at it in this light. Here is your poor mother going into the Vale of Years, and you could afford something handsome now to make her comfortable.' "'Not while you live.' "'Nothing would make her comfortable while you live,' returned Rigg, in his high, cool voice. "'What I give her, you'll take.' "'You bear me a grudge, Josh, that I know. But come now, as between man and man, without humbug. A little capital might enable me to make a first-rate thing of the shop. The tobacco trade is growing. I should cut my own nose off in not doing the best I could at it. I should stick to it like a flea to a fleece for my own sake. I should always be on the spot, and nothing would make your poor mother so happy. I've pretty well done with my wild oats, turned fifty-five. I want to settle down in my chimney-corner, and if I once buckled to the tobacco trade, I could bring an amount of brains and experience to bear on it that would not be found elsewhere in a hurry. I don't want to be bothering you one time after another but to get things once for all into the right channel. Consider that, Josh, as between man and man, with your poor mother to be made easy for her life. I was always fond of the old woman, by Jove. "'Have you done?' said Mr. Rigg, quietly, without looking away from the window. "'Yes, I've done,' said Raffles, taking hold of his hat which stood before him on the table, and giving it a sort of oratorical push." Then just listen to me. The more you say anything, the less I shall believe it. The more you want me to do a thing, the more reason I shall have for never doing it. Do you think I mean to forget your kicking me when I was a lad, and eating all the best victual away from me and my mother? Do you think I forget your always coming home to sell and pocket everything, and going off again leaving us in the lurch? I should be glad to see you whipped at the cart-tail." My mother was a fool to you. She'd no right to give me a father-in-law, and she's been punished for it. She shall have her weekly allowance paid, and no more. And that shall be stopped if you dare to come on to these premises again, or come into this country after me again. The next time you show yourself inside the gates here, you shall be driven off with the dogs and the wagoner's whip." As Rigg pronounced the last words, he turned round and looked at Raffles with his prominent frozen eyes. The contrast was as striking as it could have been eighteen years before, when Rigg was a most unengaging, kickable boy, 
and Raffles was the rather thick-set Adonis of bar-rooms and back-parlours. But the advantage now was on the side of Rig, and auditors of this conversation might probably have expected that Raffles would retire with an air of a defeated dog. Not at all. He made a grimace which was habitual with him whenever he was out in a game, then subsided into a laugh and drew a brandy-flask from his pocket. "'Come, Josh,' he said in a cajoling tone. "'Give us a spoonful of brandy, and a sovereign to pay the way back, and I'll go. Honor bright, I'll go like a bullet by Jove.' "'Mind,' said Rig, drawing out a bunch of keys, "'if I ever see you again, I shan't speak to you. I don't own you any more than if I saw a crow.' and if you want to own me, you'll get nothing by it but a character for being what you are, a spiteful, brassy, bullying rogue. "'That's a pity now, Josh,' said Raffles, affecting to scratch his head and wrinkle his brows upward as if he were nonplussed. "'I'm very fond of you, by Jove I am. There's nothing I like better than plaguing you. You're so like your mother, and I must do without it. But the brandy and the sovereign's a bargain. He jerked forward the flask, and Rig went to a fine old oaken bureau with his keys. But Raffles had reminded himself by his movement with the flask that it had become dangerously loose from its leather covering, and catching sight of a folded paper which had fallen within the fender, he took it up and shoved it under the leather so as to make the glass firm. By that time Rig came forward with a brandy-bottle, filled the flask, and handed Raffles a sovereign, neither looking at him nor speaking to him. After locking up the bureau again, he walked to the window and gazed out as impassibly as he had done at the beginning of the interview, while Raffles took a small allowance from the flask, screwed it up, and deposited it in his side-pocket with provoking slowness, making a grimace at his stepson's back. "'Farewell, Josh, and if forever,' said Raffles, turning back his head as he opened the door. Rig saw him leave the grounds and enter the lane. The grey day had turned into a light drizzling rain, which freshened the hedgerows and the grassy borders of the by-roads, and hastened the labourers who were loading the last shocks of corn." Raffles, walking with the uneasy gait of a town loiterer, obliged to do a bit of country journeying on foot, looked as incongruous amid this moist rural quiet and industry, as if he had been a baboon escaped from a menagerie. But there were none to stare at him, except the long-weaned calves, and none to show dislike of his appearance, except the little water-rats which rustled away at his approach. He was fortunate enough when he got on to the high road to be overtaken by the stage-coach, which carried him to Brassing, and there he took the new-made railway, observing to his fellow-passengers that he considered it pretty well seasoned now it had done for Huskisson. Mr. Raffles on most occasions kept up the sense of having been educated at an academy, and being able, if he chose, to pass well everywhere. Indeed, there was not one of his fellow-men whom he did not feel himself in a position to ridicule and torment, confident of the entertainment which he thus gave to all the rest of the company. He played this part now with as much spirit as if his journey had been entirely successful, 
resorting at frequent intervals to his flask. The paper with which he had wedged it was a letter signed Nicholas Bulstrode, but Raffles was not likely to disturb it from its present useful position. End of chapter 41《Chapter Forty Two of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. How much methinks I could despise this man were I not bound in charity against it. Shakespeare, Henry the Eighth. One of the professional calls made by Lydgate soon after his return from his wedding journey was to Lowick Manor, in consequence of a letter which had requested him to fix a time for his visit. Mr. Casaubon had never put any question concerning the nature of his illness to Lydgate, nor had he even to Dorothea betrayed any anxiety as to how far it might be likely to cut short his labours or his life. On this point, as on all others, he shrank from pity, and if the suspicion of being pitied for anything in his lot surmised or known in spite of himself was embittering, the idea of calling forth a show of compassion by frankly admitting an alarm or a sorrow was necessarily intolerable to him. Every proud mind knows something of this experience, and perhaps it is only to be overcome by a sense of fellowship deep enough to make all efforts at isolation seem mean and petty instead of exalting. But Mr. Casaubon was now brooding over something through which the question of his health and life haunted his silence with a more harassing importunity even than through the autumnal unripeness of his authorship. It is true that this last might be called his central ambition, but there are some kinds of authorship in which by far the largest result is the uneasy susceptibility accumulated in the consciousness of the author one knows of the river by a few streaks amid a long-gathered deposit of uncomfortable mud. That was the way with Mr. Casaubon's hard intellectual labors. Their most characteristic result was not the key to all mythologies, but a morbid consciousness that others did not give him the place which he had not demonstrably merited, a perpetual suspicious conjecture that the views entertained of him were not to his advantage, a melancholy absence of passion in his efforts at achievement, and a passionate resistance to the confession that he had achieved nothing. Thus his intellectual ambition, which seemed to others to have absorbed and dried him, was really no security against wounds, least of all against those which came from Dorothea and he had now become to frame possibilities for the future which were somehow more embittering to him than anything his mind had dwelt on before. Against certain facts he was helpless. Against Will Ladislaw's existence, his defiant stay in the neighborhood of Lowick, and his flippant state of mind with regard to the possessors of authentic, well-stamped erudition. Against Dorothea's nature, always taking on some new shape of ardent activity, and even in submission and silence covering fervid reasons which it was an irritation to think of, against certain notions and likings which had taken possession of her mind in relation to subjects that he could not possibly discuss with her. 
there was no denying that Dorothea was as virtuous and lovely a young lady as he could have obtained for a wife, but a young lady turned out to be something more troublesome than he had conceived. She nursed him, she read to him, she anticipated his wants, and was solicitous about his feelings. But there had entered into the husband's mind the certainty that she judged him, and that her wifely devotedness was like a penitential expiation of unbelieving thoughts, was accompanied with a power of comparison by which himself and his doings were seen too luminously as a part of things in general. His discontent passed vapor-like through all her gentle loving manifestations, and clung to that inappreciative world which she had only brought nearer to him. Poor Mr. Casaubon! This suffering was the harder to bear because it seemed like a betrayal. The young creature who had worshipped him with perfect trust had quickly turned into the critical wife, and early instances of criticism and resentment had made an impression which no tenderness and submission afterwards could remove. To his suspicious interpretation, Dorothea's silence now was a suppressed rebellion. A remark from her which he had not in any way anticipated was an assertion of conscious superiority. Her gentle answers had an irritating cautiousness in them, and when she acquiesced it was a self-approved effort of forbearance. The tenacity with which he strove to hide this inward drama made it the more vivid for him, as we hear with the more keenness what we wish others not to hear. Instead of wondering at this result of misery in Mr. Casaubon, I think it quite ordinary. Will not a tiny speck very close to our vision blot out the glory of the world, and leave only a margin by which we see the blot? I know no speck so troublesome as self. And who, if Mr. Casaubon had chosen to expound his discontents, his suspicions that he was not any longer adored without criticism, could have denied that they were founded on good reasons? On the contrary, there was a strong reason to be added, which he had not himself taken explicitly into account, namely, that he was not unmixedly adorable. He suspected this, however, as he suspected other things, without confessing it, and, like the rest of us, felt how soothing it would have been to have a companion who would never find it out. This sore susceptibility in relation to Dorothea was thoroughly prepared before Will Ladislaw had returned to Lowick, and what had occurred since then had brought Mr. Casaubon's power of suspicious construction into exasperated activity. To all the facts which he knew, he added imaginary facts, both present and future, which became more real to him than those, because they called up a stronger dislike, a more predominating bitterness. Suspicion and jealousy of Will Ladislaw's intentions, suspicion and jealousy of Dorothea's impressions, were constantly at their weaving work. It would be quite unjust to him to suppose that he could have entered into any coarse misinterpretation of Dorothea, his own habits of mind and conduct, quite as much as the open elevation of her nature, saved him from any such mistake. What he was jealous of was her opinion, the sway that might be given to her ardent mind in its judgments, and the future possibilities to which these might lead her. As to Will, 
though until his last defiant letter he had nothing definite which he could choose formally to allege against him, he felt himself warranted in believing that he was capable of any design which could fascinate a rebellious temper and an undisciplined impulsiveness. He was quite sure that Dorothea was the cause of Will's return from Rome, and his determination to settle in the neighborhood, and he was penetrating enough to imagine that Dorothea had innocently encouraged this course. It was as clear as possible that she was ready to be attached to Will, and to be pliant to his suggestions. They had never had a tete-a-tete without her bringing away from it some new troublesome impression, and the last interview that Mr. Casaubon was aware of, Dorothea, on returning from Freshet Hall, had for the first time been silent about having seen Will, had led to a scene which roused an angrier feeling against them both than he had ever known before. Dorothea's outpouring of her notions about money, in the darkness of the night, had done nothing but bring a mixture of more odious foreboding into her husband's mind. And there was the shock lately given to his health, always sadly present with him. He was certainly much revived, he had recovered all his usual power of work, the illness might have been mere fatigue, and there might be still twenty years of achievement before him, which would justify the thirty years of preparation. That prospect was made the sweeter by a flavor of vengeance against the hasty sneers of Carp and Company, for even when Mr. Casaubon was carrying his taper among the tombs of the past, those modern figures came athwart the dim light, and interrupted his diligent exploration. To convince Carp of his mistake, so that he would have to eat his own words with a good deal of indigestion, would be an agreeable accident of triumphant authorship, which the prospect of living to future ages on earth and to all eternity in heaven could not exclude from contemplation, since, thus, the prevision of his own unending bliss could not nullify the bitter savors of irritated jealousy and vindictiveness. It is the less surprising that the probability of a transient earthly bliss for other persons, when he himself should have entered into glory, had not a potently sweetening effect. If the truth should be that some undermining disease was at work within him, there might be a large opportunity for some people to be the happier when he was gone. And if one of those people should be Will Ladislaw, Mr. Casaubon objected so strongly that it seemed as if the annoyance would make part of his disembodied existence. This is a very bare, and therefore a very incomplete, way of putting the case. The human soul moves in many channels, and Mr. Casaubon, we know, had a sense of rectitude and an honorable pride in satisfying the requirements of honor, which compelled him to find other reasons for his conduct than those of jealousy and vindictiveness. The way in which Mr. Casaubon put the case was this. In marrying Dorothea Brooke, I had to care for her well-being in case of my death. But well-being is not to be secured by ample, independent possession of property. On the contrary, occasions might arise in which such possession might expose her to the more danger. She is ready prey to any man who knows how to play adroitly either on her affectionate ardor 
or her quixotic enthusiasm and a man stands by with that very intention in his mind a man with no other principle than transient caprice and who has a personal animosity towards me i am sure of it an animosity which is fed by the consciousness of his ingratitude and which he has constantly vented in ridicule of which i am as well assured as if i had heard it even if i live i shall not be without uneasiness as to what he may attempt through indirect influence this man has gained dorothea's ear he has fascinated her attention he has evidently tried to impress her mind with the notion that he has claims beyond anything i have done for him if i die and he is waiting here on the watch for that he will persuade her to marry him that would be calamity for her and success for him she would not think it calamity he would make her believe anything she has a tendency to immoderate attachment which she inwardly reproaches me for not responding to and already her mind is occupied with his fortunes he thinks of an easy conquest and of entering into my nest that i will hinder such a marriage would be fatal to dorothea has he ever persisted in anything except from contradiction in knowledge he has always tried to be showy at small cost in religion he could be as long as it suited him the facile echo of dorothea's vagaries when was sialism ever disassociated from laxity i utterly distrust his morals and it is my duty to hinder to the utmost the fulfilments of his designs the arrangements made by mr casaubon on his marriage left strong measures open to him but in ruminating on them his mind inevitably dwelt so much on the probabilities of his own life that the longing to get the nearest possible calculation had at last overcome his proud reticence and had determined him to ask lydgate's opinion as to the nature of his illness he had mentioned to dorothea that lydgate was coming by appointment at half-past three and in answer to her anxious question whether he had felt ill replied no i merely wish to have his opinion concerning some habitual symptoms you need not see him my dear i shall give orders that he may be sent to me in the yew-tree walk where i shall be taking my usual exercise when lydgate entered the yew-tree walk he saw mr casaubon slowly receding with his hands behind him according to his habit and his head bent forward it was a lovely afternoon the leaves from the lofty limes were falling silently across the sombre evergreens while the lights and shadows slept side by side there was no sound but the cawing of the rooks which to the accustomed ear is a lullaby or that last solemn lullaby a dirge lydgate conscious of an energetic frame in its prime felt some compassion when the figure which he was likely soon to overtake turned round and in advancing towards him showed more markedly than ever the signs of premature age the student's bent shoulders the emaciated limbs and the melancholy lines of the mouth poor fellow he thought some men with his years are like lions one can tell nothing of their age except that they are full grown mr lydgate said mr casaubon with his invariably polite air 
I am exceedingly obliged to you for your punctuality. We will, if you please, carry on our conversation in walking to and fro. I hope your wish to see me is not due to the return of unpleasant symptoms, said Lydgate, filling up a pause. Not immediately, no. In order to account for that wish, I must mention, what it were otherwise needless to refer to, that my life, on all collateral accounts insignificant, derives a possible importance from the incompleteness of labors which have extended through all its best years. In short, I have long had on hand a work which I would fain leave behind me in such a state, at least, that it might be committed to the press by others. Were I assured that this is the utmost I can reasonably expect, that assurance would be a useful circumscription of my attempts, and a guide in both the positive and negative determination of my course. Here Mr. Casaubon paused removed one hand from his back, and thrust it between the buttons of his single-breasted coat. To a mind largely instructed in the human destiny, hardly anything could be more interesting than the inward conflict implied in his formal, measured address, delivered with the usual sing-song and motion of the head. Nay, are there many situations more sublimely tragic than the struggle of the soul with the demand to renounce a work which has been all the significance of its life, a significance which is to vanish as the waters which come and go where no man has need of them? But there was nothing to strike others as sublime about Mr. Casaubon, and Lydgate, who had some contempt at hand for feudal scholarship, felt a little amusement mingling with his pity. He was at present too ill-acquainted with disaster to enter into the pathos of a lot where everything is below the level of tragedy except the passionate egoism of the sufferer. "'Do you refer to the possible hindrances from want of health?' he said, wishing to help forward Mr. Casaubon's purpose, which seemed to be clogged by some hesitation. "'I do. You have not implied to me that the symptoms which— I am bound to testify, you watched with scrupulous care, were those of a fatal disease. But were it so, Mr. Lydgate, I should desire to know the truth without reservation, and I appeal to you for an exact statement of your conclusions. I request it as a friendly service. If you can tell me that my life is not threatened by anything else than ordinary casualties, I shall rejoice on grounds which I have already indicated. If not, knowledge of the truth is even more important to me. Then I can no longer hesitate as to my course, said Lydgate. But the first thing I must impress on you is that my conclusions are doubly uncertain, uncertain not only because of my fallibility, but because diseases of the heart are eminently difficult to found predictions on. In any case, one can hardly increase appreciably the tremendous uncertainty of life. Mr. Casaubon winced perceptibly, but bowed. I believe that you are suffering from what is called fatty degeneration of the heart, a disease which was first divined and explored by Lenech, the man who gave us the stethoscope, not so very many years ago. A good deal of experience, a more lengthened observation, is wanting on the subject, 
but after what you have said it is my duty to tell you that death from this disease is often sudden at the same time no such result can be predicted your condition may be consistent with a tolerably comfortable life for another fifteen years or even more i could add no information to this beyond anatomical or medical details which would leave expectation at precisely the same point lydgate's instinct was fine enough to tell him that plain speech quite free from ostentatious caution would be felt by mr casaubon as a tribute of respect i thank you mr lydgate said mr casaubon after a moment's pause one thing more i have still to ask did you communicate what you have now told me to mrs casaubon partly i mean as to the possible issues lydgate was going to explain why he had told dorothea but mr casaubon with an unmistakable desire to end the conversation waved his hand slightly and said again i thank you proceeding to remark on the rare beauty of the day lydgate certain that his patient wished to be alone soon left him and the black figure with hands behind and head bent forward continued to pace the walk where the dark yew-trees gave him a mute companionship in melancholy and the little shadows of bird or leaf that fleeted across the aisles of sunlight stole along in silence as in the presence of a sorrow here was a man who now for the first time found himself looking into the eyes of death who was passing through one of those rare moments of experience when we feel the truth of a commonplace which is as different from what we call knowing it as the vision of waters upon the earth is different from the delirious vision of the water which cannot be had to cool the burning tongue when the commonplace we must all die transforms itself suddenly into the acute consciousness i must die and soon then death grapples us and his fingers are cruel afterwards he may come to fold us in his arms as our mother did and our last moment of dim earthly discerning may be like the first to mr casaubon now it was as if he suddenly found himself on the dark river brink and heard the plash of the oncoming oar not discerning the forms but expecting the summons in such an hour the mind does not change its lifelong bias but carries it onward in imagination to the other side of death gazing backward perhaps with the divine calm of beneficence perhaps with the petty anxieties of self-assertion what was mr casaubon's bias his acts will give us a clue to he held himself to be with some private scholarly reservations a believing christian as to estimates of the present and hopes of the future but what we strive to gratify though we may call it a distant hope is an immediate desire the future estate for which men drudge up city alleys exists already in their imagination and love and mr casaubon's immediate desire was not for divine communion and light divested of earthly conditions his passionate longings poor man clung low and mist-like in very shady places dorothea had been aware when lydgate had ridden away and she had stepped into the garden with the impulse to go at once to her husband 
but she hesitated, fearing to offend him by obtruding herself, for her ardor, continually repulsed, served, with her intense memory, to heighten her dread, as thwarted energy subsides into a shudder, and she wandered slowly round the nearer clumps of trees until she saw him advancing. Then she went towards him, and might have represented a heaven-sent angel coming with a promise that the short hours remaining should yet be filled with that faithful love which clings the closer to a comprehended grief. His glance in reply to hers was so chill that she felt her timidity increased, yet she turned and passed her hand through his arm. Mr. Casaubon kept his hands behind him, and allowed her pliant arm to cling with difficulty against his rigid arm. There was something horrible to Dorothea in the sensation which this unresponsive hardness inflicted on her. That is a strong word, but not too strong. It is in these acts called trivialities that the seeds of joy are forever wasted, until men and women look round with haggard faces at the devastation their own waste has made and say, the earth bears no harvest of sweetness, calling their denial knowledge. You may ask why, in the name of manliness, Mr. Casaubon should have behaved in that way. Consider that his was a mind which shrank from pity. Have you ever watched in such a mind the effect of a suspicion that what is pressing it as a grief may be really a source of contentment, either actual or future? to the being who already offends by pitying? Besides, he knew little of Dorothea's sensations, and had not reflected that on such an occasion as the present they were comparable in strength to his own sensibilities about Carp's criticisms. Dorothea did not withdraw her arm, but she could not venture to speak. Mr. Casaubon did not say, I wish to be alone, but he directed his steps in silence towards the house and as they entered by the glass door on this eastern side, Dorothea withdrew her arm and lingered on the matting, that she might leave her husband quite free. He entered the library and shut himself in, alone with his sorrow. She went up to her boudoir. The open bow-window let in the serene glory of the afternoon lying in the avenue, where the lime-trees cast long shadows, but Dorothea knew nothing of the scene. She threw herself on a chair, not heeding that she was in the dazzling sun-rays. If there were discomfort in that, how could she tell that it was not part of her inward misery? She was in the reaction of a rebellious anger stronger than any she had felt since her marriage. Instead of tears there came words. What have I done, what am I, that he should treat me so? He never knows what is in my mind. He never cares. What is the use of anything I do? He wishes he had never married me. She began to hear herself, and was checked into stillness. Like one who has lost his way and is weary, she sat and saw, as in one glance, all the paths of her young hope which she should never find again. And just as clearly in the miserable light she saw her own and her husband's solitude, how they walked apart, so that she was obliged to survey him. If he had drawn her towards him, she would never have surveyed him, never have said, Is he worth living for? 
but would have felt him simply a part of her own life. Now she said bitterly, It is his fault, not mine. In the jar of her whole being, pity was overthrown. Was it her fault that she had believed in him, and believed in his worthiness? And what exactly was he? She was able enough to estimate him, she who waited on his glances with trembling, and shut her best soul in prison, paying it only hidden visits, that she might be petty enough to please him. In such a crisis as this, some women begin to hate. The sun was low when Dorothea was thinking that she would not go down again, but would send a message to her husband, saying that she was not well and preferred remaining upstairs. She had never deliberately allowed her resentment to govern her in this way before, but she believed now that she could not see him again without telling him the truth about her feeling, and she must wait till she could do it without interruption. He might wonder and be hurt at her message. It was good that he should wonder and be hurt. Her anger said, as anger is apt to say, that God was with her, that all heaven, though it were crowded with spirits watching them, must be on her side. She had determined to ring her bell when there came a rap at the door. Mr. Casaubon had sent to say that he would have his dinner in the library. He wished to be quite alone this evening, being much occupied. "'I shall not dine, then, Tantrip. "'Oh, madam, let me bring you a little something. "'No, I am not well. "'Get everything ready in my dressing-room, but pray do not disturb me again.' Dorothea sat almost motionless in her meditative struggle, while the evening slowly deepened into night. But the struggle changed continually, as that of a man who begins with the movement towards striking, and ends with conquering his desire to strike. The energy that would animate a crime is not more than is wanted to inspire a resolved submission, when the noble habit of the soul reasserts itself. That thought with which Dorothea had gone out to meet her husband, her conviction that he had been asking about the possible arrest of all his work, and that the answer must have wrung his heart, could not be long without rising beside the image of him, like a shadowy monitor looking at her anger with sad remonstrance. It cost her a litany of pictured sorrows and of silent cries that she might be the mercy for those sorrows, but the resolved submission did come, and when the house was still, and she knew that it was near the time when Mr. Casaubon habitually went to rest, she opened her door gently and stood outside in the darkness, waiting for his coming upstairs with a light in his hand. If he did not come soon, she thought that she would go down and even risk incurring another pang. She would never again expect anything else. But she did hear the library door open and slowly the light advanced up the staircase without noise from the footsteps on the carpet. When her husband stood opposite to her, she saw that his face was more haggard. He started slightly on seeing her, and she looked up at him beseechingly, without speaking. "'Dorothea,' he said, with a gentle surprise in his tone, "'were you waiting for me?' "'Yes, I did not like to disturb you.' "'Come, my dear, come.' You are young, and need not to extend your life by watching. When the kind, quiet melancholy of that speech fell on Dorothea's ears, 
she felt something like the thankfulness that might well up in us if we had narrowly escaped hurting a lamed creature. She put her hand into her husband's, and they went along the broad corridor together. End of chapter 42